All right, welcome back to Revealed Apologetics. And I say welcome back because we had a, uh, a test live stream uh, yesterday where I took some, uh, did some Q&A on the topic of apologetics and, and those who were listening in had some excellent questions. Uh, but welcome back. Um, I'm very excited about this uh, specific episode uh, because this has been a very highly anticipated episode. Today I have two astrophysicists, uh, Christian apologists, um, and uh, Bible-believing Christians who come on completely different ends on a very important uh, question. Of course, they do share a lot of common uh, beliefs as well, but we're going to be talking about uh, the creation debate, the old earth creationist view and the young earth creationist view. And so I, I figured that Having uh, someone like uh, Dr. Hugh Ross on and Dr. Jason Lyle, um, these are two uh, excellent proponents of each respective uh, position to be able to um, lay out their explanations and defenses as to why they believe what they believe with regards to this question. So I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. Now, as uh, those who have followed my, my channel before, and you've heard me say this in various contexts, I am agnostic with regards to this question. Um, I'm totally not um, a theistic evolutionist, uh, so so that's not on the table for me. But but young Earth and old Earth, those interpretations and those particular views that I kind of uh, go back and forth. Um, let me see. I have uh, I have Jason Lyle's books. I don't have Jason's book with me here, so I do apologize. But I do have uh, Hugh's book, Why the Universe Is the Way That It Is. That's not fair. I'm there. We go. Here's a Jason Lyle. <laughs> Here's a Jason Lyle book. Excellent book on logic. Um, but of course, he has uh, his very well-known uh, book, The Ultimate Proof for Creation, where um, he uh, goes into some presuppositional apologetics and, of course, young earth creationism as well in there. And I think I have his uh, creation, uh, something or other, and beyond <laughs> or something like that. Excellent book. I'm sure you guys can check out their material on Amazon and their respective uh, websites. Uh, but today, I want to welcome uh, Dr. Ross and Dr. Lyle. I'm going to invite them on to uh, share the screen with me right now. Um, and uh, there they are. And um, I'm super excited. And I think we're going to be very, very um, educated in this episode as we're going to learn um, from folks who uh, obviously have done a lot of study in this area and have very strong views with respect to this uh, topic. So why don't we take a, a brief uh, couple of uh, moments here for Dr. Lyle to briefly introduce himself, uh, Dr. Ross to briefly introduce himself, and then we'll get started. So Dr. Lyle, uh, why don't you say a little something to the audience uh, listening? Okay, well, I'm, I'm Jason Lyle. I'm an astrophysicist. I uh, got my PhD from the University of Colorado in Boulder and uh, in physics and astronomy, astrophysics. And then uh, I have now started the Biblical Science Institute, which is a Christian apologetics ministry that helps people to see that science is not antagonistic to the Bible, but that science, when it's properly understood, confirms what the Bible teaches. And I do have a heavy emphasis on defending Genesis, a literal historical Genesis that God really created in six days supernaturally, that, that sin really entered the world through uh, Adam and so on. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. Dr. Ross, how about you share a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm an astrophysicist as well. I got my PhD at the University of Toronto and then did postdoctoral research at Caltech for five years on the galaxies and quasars. And uh, shortly after that, uh, founded the organization Reasons to Believe for a group of research scientists uh, that study the frontiers of scientific research and develop new evidences uh, for the truth of the Bible and uh, what the Bible says about creation. So, all right, very good. 
Um, now, um, I guess my, my first question to kind of just open up the discussion is why don't you just lay out in summary form, Dr. Lyle uh, first and then Dr. Ross, why don't you summarize briefly just the gist of your position? So uh, obviously people who are familiar with you are going to know your positions, but for our purposes here, why don't we just briefly lay out um, here's my view, here's my view, and then we'll dive into some uh, what I think are important questions and again, which are going to get into some of the disagreements between uh, between the both of you. So, Dr. Lyle, why don't you share uh, a brief summary of your position with regards to the question of uh, young earth creationism? Okay. I have a, a high view of scripture. I believe that scripture is the inerrant word of God in the original manuscripts. People complain we don't have the original manuscripts, but we have very, very reliable copies, so that's not really an issue. Okay. Uh, I do believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, that the Bible is basically clear in what it intends to communicate. It's not a puzzle that we have to try and, uh, and solve and, and you know, get all these different parts to really understand what it means. It's, it's clear. That's not to say there aren't any difficult sections. The Bible itself says there are some difficult sections, but I think that's more in terms of accepting what it has to say than understanding what it has to say. There's a difference between those two. And I believe in the grammatical historical approach to uh, interpretation, to hermeneutics. How we read the Bible should be based on uh, the grammar of the passage, given the historical context. And, and generally, the historical context is given by the Bible itself. The Bible is primarily a history book. And so it tells us the history of, the, well, the beginning of the world. It tells us, and it focuses in primarily on the history of Israel and so on as God's uh, chosen people in the Old Testament and so on. And so I believe that when you when you combine those three things, the inerrancy of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture and the grammatical historical approach, when you then read Genesis, you come to the conclusion that God really made in six days, each of those defined as an earth rotation bound by an evening and a morning. And that is, in fact, the basis for our work week. And so in Exodus uh, 20, beginning in verse eight, where we remember remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And on six days, you'll do your labor. The seventh is the Lord's. Then God gives the explanation for why. In verse uh, 11, we work six days and rest one. We have a seven-day week because God worked in six days and rested one. He uses the same word for days there, yamin, which uh, which always means days. Yamin is the plural form of yom. And so it's, uh, it's very clear that God created six ordinary days. He did that for our benefit. He could have created the universe in an instant. He had the power to do that. He really slowed himself down to make in six days. And then he rested one, again, as a pattern for us. And in my mind, the importance of the issue is not so much about a specific date. You know, somebody says, well, I, I think it's maybe 5,000 years instead of 4,000 because of the whatever reason, maybe they're using the, the um, Septuagint instead of the Masoretic text. And that, that's fine. There's, there's uh, there are legitimate debates on those kind of issues. But in my mind, the issue here is, is the Bible inerrant and perspicuous? And should, and what is the uh, apologetic or the hermeneutical approach that we should use to scripture and then the theology that follows from it. Uh, namely, I would suggest that all Christian doctrines, maybe we can go to this detail late in, in the more detail later, but I would suggest that all major Christian doctrines are based on historical uh, grammatical reading of Genesis where God really did make in six days, death really did enter the world as a result of Adam's sin. There really was a global flood and that th these are foundational issues to the Christian worldview. Mm. All right, very good. That's a good uh, good summary there. I think you covered a lot of ground there. Uh, Dr. Ross, why don't you um, lay out your position for us, please? Well, uh, I hold to all the uh, affirmations and denials of the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy, and likewise all their affirmations and denials on hermeneutics. Uh, so that's something I actually require all of our staff scholars at Reasons to Believe to sign. Uh, and with respect to uh, 
I believe that Genesis is historical. It's chronological. Uh, you know, I'm not a theistic evolutionist, and I don't believe that we should be taking those texts figuratively. I think there's plenty within the text that tells us they should be read literally, historically, and chronologically. Uh, however, I do believe that these creation days, I actually sign a statement that I believe that God created in six literal days, but the Hebrew word for day has four distinct literal definitions, one of which includes a long period of time. And the thing that struck me when I first looked at the Bible at age 17, uh, before I became a Christian, is that this word day, just in the first page, is used with three different definitions. I mean, creation day one is contrasting days and nights. That's day for the daylight hours. Creation day four is contrasting seasons, days, and years. That's day for 24 hours. But Genesis 2-4 uses the word day uh, for a long period of time, namely for all the creation activity that God performed uh, with the universe and the earth. And just noticing that there's no evening and morning uh, for the seventh day, and that there's three texts in the Bible that are explicitly or implicitly tell us we're still in God's seventh day, tells me that at least the seventh day is a long period of time. We're still in it. And as a young scientist that said, now I understand why so many in the life sciences say we see no scientific evidence for God, and why so many of us in the physical sciences say we see evidence for God everywhere. For six days, God creates, and the seventh day, he stops creating. So if you're doing your scientific research on the human era, which is typical for most in the life sciences, all you're going to see is the natural process. But if you're looking before the human era, this is when God is actively creating. So this explains why so many of us in the physical sciences believe in God as a creator and why you don't see quite as many in the life sciences. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the flood, I believe the flood uh, was universal to all of humanity, all the animals associated with him. I mean, Second Peter 2, it's the world of the ungodly that God flooded. Uh, and Second Peter 3, 6, the world that existed at that time. The very fact that we see Peter qualifying the Greek word cosmos tells us he's not referring to the entire planet, but he's referring to the entire region of the earth where human beings lived. So I don't believe that God necessarily flooded Antarctica, but he certainly wiped out all the places on the earth where human beings lived. Okay. Uh, now you said something interesting here. You said that there are multiple literal meanings for um, the word yom. Now, when people talk about um, young earth creationism, uh, they often associate young earth creationism with the literal interpretation. I'm sure you're familiar with that, that kind of terminology. Uh, my question, I guess, uh, for Dr. Lyle, uh, with respect to what you just said, Dr. Lyle, do you think Dr. Ross's interpretation is a legitimate, not that you think it's true, but it's legitimate for him to say this is the literal interpretation. So that it's, it's really an issue of one's literal interpretation versus another person's literal interpretation of which the context is going to determine who's using the proper literal terminology. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would say not. I would say that literal, the word literal means the ordinary, everyday usage of a word. And if you do a search in scripture, you'll find that the ordinary, everyday usage of the word yom is day. It's not, it's not generally used to mean a long period of time. It is occasionally, but that is almost always in the poetic literature. 
where we would expect non-literal uses. And so, uh, for example, the day of the Lord, I think that does refer to a period of time longer than 24 hours, but it's, it's qualified. It's part of a figure of speech, and it's primarily in the uh, places like the Psalms or the, the, um, the prophetic literature, which tends to be written in a, in a poetic fashion. It uses the Hebrew parallelism. And so that's what you'll tend to find with that, whereas the literal meaning of day would be day. And it's the same with our English word for day. Our English word for day can mean a period of time. And so you might say back in my father's day, yeah, that, you know, I don't mean 24 hours. I, I mean a period of time longer than that. Yeah. Uh, that's perfectly legitimate, but it's non-literal. I'm using it somewhat metaphorically there. And I don't think that, and Hugh, I don't think you should be ashamed to say that some sections of the Bible are non-literal because I think we would both agree on that. It's just we need to decide which parts are literal and which are not. And even within historical narrative, you can have occasional figures of speech. So the question is, is that what we find in Genesis? And I would say, no, I would say that the word yom is actually very tightly constrained in Genesis because God is using it specifically to mean either either the light portion of a day, as, as you pointed out, or a 24-hour day, but it's never used as a period of time, not in Genesis. Now, in poetic literature, occasionally. How about Genesis 2-4? It's definitely used there for a significant period of time. Well, not necessarily, not necess because that could be referring to in the day, that could be the day God created. Uh, it wouldn't have to be the period of time. It could be. It could be referring to that first day, but in the day, but in the day. By the way, it's a little different there, Hugh. I don't know if you know this. In, in Hebrew, uh, it, when you attach, it's actually a different form of the word. It's actually biyom, biyom, and biyom is often used to mean when. And so it's not just yom. It's biyom. It's a little different, and that can mean when. So if you wanted to take Genesis two four as uh, biyom. It's not yom, it's beyom as meaning when. I'm okay with that. That's fine. And then I have a question based upon uh, Dr. Lyle's definition of the term literal. And I want to see if you agree with that. But why don't you speak to what he just said there and then uh, we'll go from there. Well, I've actually consulted with a number of uh, theologians that are very fluent in Hebrew, both young earth and old earth. And all of them tell me uh, that indeed a long period of time is a literal uh, usage of the word yom. I mean, we need to understand, I think it helps to understand that this is primarily an English language debate, and it's because you're dealing with translating from biblical Hebrew, a very small vocabulary language into an extremely large vocabulary language. And it isn't just the Hebrew word yom. Virtually every Hebrew noun has multiple literal definitions. The word arrest for earth in Genesis 1 has five distinct literal definitions. And this is typical of a language that has a very small vocabulary size. Uh, the words must have multiple literal definitions because they don't have millions of words like we have in English. So that's why it's important to actually take advantage of lexical aids. But every Hebrew English lexicon I've ever looked at uh, explicitly states there are four distinct literal definitions of the word yom. And so it really is a literal interpretation versus a literal interpretation. Now, real quick, so uh, Dr. Lau, can you define literal the way you defined it before, if you remember your wording? And then I wanna see uh, if Dr. Ross agrees with your, uh, your definition of what it means to interpret something literally. Literal is the ordinary everyday meaning of a term. All right, Dr. Ross, would you agree that that's what literal means? And no, I would not because okay. there's multiple words where we have several uh, distinct definitions that we could use. 
mean, this is even true in the English language, although to a much lesser degree than it is in biblical Hebrew. And so there could be more than one literal definition uh, for words. That's true in all languages. Well, you, I never said otherwise. I didn't say there couldn't be more than one literal definition, but they would all have to be ordinary everyday usage. And so the day is a period of daylight. Is that's We use that every day. And day is a rotation of Earth's axis. We use that every day. You say, back in my father's day, that's a little less common. And I'll grant that the line is blurry. How, how common does something have to be to be to fall into the literal category? But just because something has a definition doesn't make it a literal definition. Uh, there are many words in the English language that have common uses and they have more rare uses. The common uses I would call literal, the rare uses I would call metaphoric. Yeah, but that's not how linguists treat language. I mean, it's not the most common uh, literal definitions. That's the only literal definition. I don't know of any linguist that would accept that. Well, Stephen Boyd, for example, his PhD is in Hebrew. He would say that the long period of time definition of Yom is a non-literal definition. I'm sure he would call that metaphoric. Or Jim Johnson, who's, who's also got a PhD, and he's a Hebrew expert as well. So those are those are a couple of examples of people who would disagree with you on that. But yeah, I think the, the like issue, I mean, what, what we're having here is not a real debate. It's a semantic debate about what the word literal means. And so the, the real issue is what does the word yom mean in the context of Genesis? And so if you want to use a non-literal definition of the word literal, that's fine. But we're going to we're, we're using different terminology there. Yeah. See, that's where we disagree. I, I insist that I am using a literal reading. And yeah, many of your young earth colleagues totally agree with me on this. I mean, I've been to Dallas Theological Seminary. All the young earth creationist theologians there accept the fact that Yom and D could be uh, taken as a literal definition of a long period of time. So I don't see this as a controversial issue. Now, it, let's grant, okay, so it's a possible literal interpretation. Now, for me, as I said before, I'm agnostic with regards to this. When I was, I grew up in church. I grew up since I was... I was born. <laughs> my, my earliest memory has been in church, and I've read a Genesis uh, countless times. Now, I have to say, without taking a position one way or the other, I do have to admit that uh, without being influenced by others as well, because my church really never talked about these, these points in any detail. When I did read uh, the creation account, it did seem uh, that what's being referred to there are just days as a, a average person would understand that. How would you speak to that, Dr. Ross? It does, I mean, I know that I've heard your story where when you read it, you knew automatically, no, there's more going on here. It's not a 24 hour day necessarily. But a lot of people who read it, it seems that, hey, yeah, it kind of seems straightforward. How can you speak to the straight, the apparent straightforwardness of it all? <laughs> well, you know, looking at the fact that we have the first six days bracketed by an evening and a morning, Okay. And likewise, the Hebrew words there have multiple literal definitions. But I knew at a minimum, it was actually declaring each of these creation days as a definite start point and a definite end point. And uh, excuse me, I'm going to disconnect that phone. Hang on. That better be Jesus calling. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Very interesting. Uh, by the way, um, while... Uh, Dr. Ross is doing that. Just a quick couple of quick announcements. On July 16th, I'll be having Frank Turek on uh, to discuss um, issues related to his book, Stealing from God, um, which I hope he doesn't watch this, but I love the book and I endorse the book, but it sounds like, like more from Stealing from Bonson. But he's almost presuppositional in that book, and I, I think it's still very helpful to talk about. Also, um, Dr. James Anderson will be on tomorrow 
to talk about the key differences between presuppositional methodology and classical methodology. And then on July 29th, we have Greg Kolkel on to talk um, a little bit about strategies and navigating conversations with unbelievers. So uh, definitely check those things out. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Real Apologetics YouTube channel and, and click the notification button so that you guys are up on these uh, interviews and discussions when they come. All right, let's continue uh, with our discussion there. Okay, I forgot where I left off, but I did disconnect the landline. So okay. we should get no Mandarin interference. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no worries. Well, let, let me uh, let, let me move on to, uh, well, here's my question. I said something to the effect that um, when you read Genesis 1, I know that you read it and knew that this isn't, this isn't speaking about literal, you know, 24-hour days. Um, but I was kind of asking along the lines of the average person that I, I mean, I've been in the church life. I've been in the church game, so to speak, my entire life. And um, everyone that reads the Genesis account that I've encountered seemed to think that, yeah, these are God created in six days and days seem to be talking about days as, as we as we would know it. And so you kind of were speaking to that. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, I was not raised in a Christian home, uh, but at age 16, because of my astronomy, I was persuaded that there had to be a God mm -hmm. and actually began a search of the world's different holy books. So when I opened up the Bible, I was quite prepared to say, hey, you know, this isn't uh, God's word. In fact, I didn't think God was communicating to us through writing. Uh, but when I looked at the text, I was expecting that these days uh, would be 24 hours, but that there would be an evening and a morning for the seventh day. The fact that I didn't see an evening and a morning for the seventh day says, okay, these first six days have got a definite start point and a definite end point but we don't see that for day seven. So obviously it began because God's resting. So I went through the rest of the Bible and found passages that declared we're still in God's seventh day. And also as I looked at Genesis chapter two, I noticed that there was a passage of time between God creating Adam and God creating Eve. I mean, Adam went through three careers uh, before Eve shows up. And yet when you go to Genesis one, it says that God created both the human male and the human female on the sixth day. So it says that means the sixth day has to be a long period of time, just like the seventh day. Then looking at the grammatical structure of Genesis 1, it told me we're looking at six consecutive long periods of time uh, for God creating. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, a question, I guess, for Dr. Lyle. You you mentioned, Dr. Ross, uh, the, the seventh day seems, and, and again, even when I was reading uh, the scriptures at this point, they did seem like 24 hour days. I mean, uh, when I was reading it, but even back then the, uh, the seventh day did seem unique. Um, and when I even study this issue now, I, I kind as I'm not swayed one way or the other, I kind of see that the seventh day seems to indicate, Hey, there's a little more going on. How would you speak to the seventh day, uh, with regards to, you know, there, there's no closure, it seems. And then in the book of Hebrews, there seems to be a suggestion that the seventh day is kind of still going on, so that there's kind of a, a broader theological uh, understanding of the seventh day. Uh, how would you understand that, Dr. Lyle? Well, first of all, it is an argument from silence to argue that there's no evening and morning on the seventh day merely because they're not mentioned. Uh, just because something isn't mentioned in Scripture doesn't mean it never happened. The Bible never mentions Adam going to the bathroom, but I think we can assume that he probably did from time to time. It's in the Apocrypha. It's <laughs> <laughs> you, get, you get my drift. Yeah. I'm just making a claim to the obvious. But in any case, uh, 
So, of course, there was an evening and morning of the seventh day. They're not mentioned. Why? The seventh day is different. It's special. It's the day that God blessed and hallowed. It's not a day of creation. It's a day of rest. And so it is different qualitatively. And God is allowed to select it out and make it qualitative. And by the way, it seems a little bit, I don't know, inconsistent to me to say, well, the seventh day could be long because it's, it doesn't have that evening in the morning. But the other days do, which would implicitly imply that they, that they are ordinary days. They are bound by an evening and a morning. And with regard to what Hebrews says about God's rest, God's rest is continuing. It doesn't mean the day continues. If I said I worked all day Wednesday, all day Thursday, all day Friday, and then I took a rest on Saturday and I'm still resting today, that doesn't mean that today is Saturday. My rest can continue beyond the day. But the reason we know that the days in Genesis are ordinary is because God specifies what they mean. They're, they're, they're bound, they are defined in terms of having one evening and one morning. That's what makes one day. So Genesis is, Genesis 1 is very clear about that, and all the days of creation do have that evening and, in, and morning. This, it's just not mentioned for the seventh day, but the number's there, and having a number with the day in, in a uh, narrative sequence like that is indicative of ordinary days. So you would say it's safe to assume that because days one through six had evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, that it's safe to assume, well, there's no reason to think that the seventh day didn't have that just because it's not mentioned. And you probably are thinking, and maybe Dr. Ross can respond, you're probably thinking that the old earth interpretation that wants to leave this possibility open is kind of looking for kind of a, a possible interpretive loophole to allow for a longer period of time. Is that what you think, Dr. Lyle? And maybe Dr. Ross could respond to why that's not the case. I do think that. And, and I'll say this is a vice that's common to all Christians. I'm not immune from this. We all have a tendency to have this worldview that we take to the Bible and then try to interpret the Bible according to that worldview. Okay. And it takes a great deal of work to, to not do that. And God gave us the church so that we could challenge each other and say, look, brother, here's how I read the scripture. How do you read it? So that we can challenge each other to, to make sure that we're not doing that. And I would suggest with, with all respect to my, my brother, Hugh, that uh, because he had a big bang, philosophy before he ever read the Bible, that he imported that into the Bible. And I think it's very hard to uh, to not do that. But uh, it's something we all need to work as Christians to challenge each other to not do, to read the Bible exegetically rather than eisegetically. So is, is that what you're doing, Dr. Ross? Are you trying to squeeze Big Bang cosmology into the Bible, you sneaky man, you? <laughs> is that what you're trying to do? Well, I, I do see Big Bang cosmology in the Bible, but not in Genesis, other than the fact that it speaks about the fact that there's a beginning to the universe. Okay. One of the components of Big Bang cosmology. Uh, but I was looking at the text before I was a believer. And so I didn't have any vested commitment in this. I mean, if it was 24 hours or a long period of time, I could go either way. Uh, but reading the text, it says, it seems very clear. These days are significant passages of time. I mean, I looked at the evening and morning as simply a reference to the fact, okay, each day, as a start point and an end point. And, uh, but we don't see an end point for creation day seven. We don't find it anywhere uh, in the Bible. We do see it hinted at in Revelation. We come to the new creation. God's rest will end. He will create again. But this is the period of time in which we're in and uh, when God is not creating. And again, as a young scientist, I'd said, well, okay, I think that explains why we see this demarcation between people in the physical sciences and those in the life sciences. Mm -hmm. They're looking at different periods of time. Yeah. Now, when we're talking about this, it's very difficult because we live in a very scientific age. Uh, not that everyone is scientifically educated, but uh, science looms very large in the background and it has the potential to affect 
how we look at things. As you both of you know, that um, while both of you will deny that you're trying to uh, squeeze scientific interpretation so as to kind of make it consistent with the Bible, um, there is that looming influence that's always creeping behind every shadow as we're trying to bring the Bible to a point of relevancy to what's going on in, in the modern world. So there's definitely a, a temptation there. Um, but of course, I, you guys would deny that that's what you're trying to do. Um, but because science plays a large role as moderns coming to the text, um, what do you think, uh, and from both of these, maybe Dr. Ross first and then Dr. Lyle, uh, what role should science play when we're looking into these issues, especially with the, the length of the days and uh, how we interpret Genesis? What's the relationship there as you see it, Dr. Ross? Well, again, I came at the text before I was a believer. It's like, okay, what I see in the universe is a God where everything is harmonious, mm -hmm. everything fits together. I don't see contradictions. I see an appeal to elegance and beauty. And so I said, of all these different holy books I'm looking at, you know, I was looking at the Vedas, the Quran, uh, the Buddhist commentaries, uh, Baha'i, etc. I said, which of these actually matches the revelation I see in the record of nature? Mm -hmm. Which one gets the history right? Which one gets the science right? Which one gets the geography right? And I quickly recognized that was not the case for the Hindu Vedas. Mm -hmm. It's got, it's filled, right? This is something Jason and I would agree on is that it doesn't match uh, what we see in future history and science. Mm -hmm. This is what really impressed me about the Bible. I saw that it had predictive power. It had the power to predict with accuracy future historical events in terms of what was happening with human beings. It also had the power to predict future scientific discoveries. And the fact that it did so without error, I said, this can't just be inspired by human beings. This has to be inspired by the one that actually did all the deeds, the one who actually has control over space and time. And so after two years study of the Bible, I signed my name in the back of a Gideon Bible saying, this is the word of God, and they gave my life to Jesus Christ. Hmm. Dr. Lyle, do you have anything to say to that? And then we're going to move on to uh, the issue of, um, well, I want to talk a little bit about these two books that you often talk about, Dr. Ross, the, the book of nature and the, and the book of scripture. Um, and I want to see if, if you guys agree on that. I want to see what your perspective is on that. Maybe we can move on to um, a little bit of your scientific um, reasons for affirming, uh, or at least not reasons for affirming, but your scientific evidences to support your position in a way that's consistent with your biblical interpretation as well. So, uh, so uh, Dr. Lyle, is there anything you want to say to what Dr. Ross has just shared there with, the, with regards to the relationship between uh, science and uh, the Bible and coming to this question? I think it's very interesting uh, the way, Hugh, that you, that you came to, to Scripture because it basically, it's, it, in your mind, science supported it. And my approach is a little different because in my view, we don't take the Bible and then and say this is this is very likely the word of God or maybe it is the word of God because it lines up with all this scientific evidence. I would say the Bible is the foundation by which I have confidence in science. See, that's that's the difference. Rather than science being the standard by which I know the Bible is true, I would say the Bible is the standard by which I can have some confidence in the scientific method and perhaps even some of the conclusions that scientists draw, although although those are fallible. Uh, with regard to your, your original question, 
uh, Eli, uh, I would say that I believe in the ministerial role of science in interpretation, but not a magisterial role, which is to say that if there are issues where the Bible is genuinely silent, uh, maybe some matters of history where the, the details are not recorded, it is appropriate for us to use science to make a guess, providing we don't elevate that guess to the level of scripture, it's perfectly fine. But I would say it's not acceptable to use science or man's understanding, I guess, of, of the evidence, which is, in, which is one definition of science, mm -hmm. uh, to override the clear teaching of the scripture. And so, for example, it is, it is generally a very good scientific principle that dead men stay dead. That is something that we have repeated observations of. And yet the Bible says there have been a few cases where that is not the case, where people have been raised from the dead. And I would say, well, in that case, that scientific conclusion is wrong, or at least it doesn't hold generally, because the Bible tells me there are exceptions. And so the Bible is my standard, my ultimate standard. I'm a presuppositionalist. And so then when I look at evidence, I, I believe that we should interpret the evidence in light of the clear revelation that God's given us in Scripture. Mm -hmm. um well, Dr. Ross, if you would like to give a, a follow-up, I did, I did say we want to move on, but I would imagine perhaps you'd want to speak to something there. <laughs> well, I do agree with Jason that uh, we should never allow science to trump the Bible. I mean, that's actually built into the statements of the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, and, you know, my position, I think, as you know, is that God has revealed himself through two books, uh, the book of Scripture and the book of Nature. And you know, we're commanded in the Bible to put everything to the test. So God wants our faith to be built on testable evidence. So yes, I am an evidentialist, but I also see the value of presuppositionalism, namely that it's a, a great tool to show us what is not true. Evidentialism is a great tool for establishing what is true. And I think proper apologetics, we need to use both tools and incidentally, I think there are other apologetic approaches that likewise need to be taken into account. So I personally don't want to be pigeonholed into a particular apologetics approach. because I think scripture actually encourages us to combine the five or six different apologetics models out there. And keep in mind, people need to hear the gospel in multiple different ways. So I think we should be encouraged to do that uh, as apologists. All right. Well, thank you for that. Now, my next question has to do with these two books. Do, do both of you hold to the two book uh, model, the book of nature, the book of scripture distinction? Uh, Dr. Lyle, uh, do you do you hold to that two book notion? And if so, why don't you unpack that for us? If not, likewise. Um, I, I would say no. Uh, I would call it a fallacy to call nature a book because it's not propositional. A book is, is a record of statements, statements that have been recorded. I do believe in dual revelation, of course. There's no doubt God's revealed himself through nature. I think we all agree on that. But I would say that the Bible is God's special revelation. And it because it's his special revelation, because it's written in a human language, it has a clarity to it that nature does not have. And sometimes people will equivocate on this. They'll say, well, you know, your interpretation of the Bible has to match your interpretation of nature. But that's an equivocation fallacy on the word interpretation. Because when I'm interpreting scripture, what am, I, what am I doing? I'm understanding the meaning of the statements. When I'm interpreting nature, is that what I'm doing? No. When I'm interpreting nature, I'm creating statements that I think are true that apply to nature. And then they have to be interpreted linguistically. And so there's a, there's a second level there. And so I would say that the statements that scientists make about nature are fallible. They're not on the same level as scripture. 
And if those statements are contrary to the scripture, we need to reject those statements in favor of what the Bible says. So I'm all for, for dual revelation, but the Bible indicates itself that special revelation has a superiority, especially when it comes to the gospel. You don't get the gospel in general revelation. Uh, you look at the world. If you didn't have the Bible, you look at the world, you'd say, well, full of death and suffering. God is an ogre if he exists at all. You read the Bible, you say, oh, wait a minute. It wasn't originally that way. The Bible gives us the clarity of history to say, wait a minute, it's because of man's sin that death and all the suffering entered the world because God put man in charge of the world. And as we all know, when, when you have authority over something, so when someone is an authority over you and they make a bad decision, it affects you. We, think of the, the <laughs> think of our current situation with, with all the different politics that's going on these days. People who are in authority over us, when they sin, it affects us. And so Adam's sin affected the world. And it's the Bible that tells us that. It's the Bible that gives us the lens through which we can correctly interpret the data in nature. Not that we'll always do that perfectly, but it, it, it's, it's the foundational basis on which we should be interpreting what we observe in nature. Yeah. Uh, how much do you disagree with that, Dr. Ross? And how much do you agree with that? I, I'm sure there's some things in there that you would agree. Uh, well, what are the key differences? This is probably the most important part of our dialogue, because yes, there are parts I agree, parts where I disagree. And I think where we disagree is really going to be quite helpful. I mean, I do agree with Jason that the Bible is the only propositional revelation from God. Uh, I do accept sola scriptura, uh, but that doesn't negate the fact that God has also revealed himself through nature. And so I agree with Jason Weil that there really is a dual revelation and we're commanded in scripture to actually look at that revelation that reveals the attributes of God. Uh, you know, I think what concerns me about Jason's statements is his idea that somehow uh, the record of nature is tainted by human sin, so it doesn't reliably reveal God's truth, whereas scripture does. And what I see in Genesis uh, 3.17 is that the ground is cursed because of you. It's because of our human sin that the ground doesn't produce the way that God intended. The laws of physics are intact. Scripture is clear in that. There's been no change in the laws or constants of physics. Uh, when Adam fell. And so the record of nature is still just as reliable today as it was before Adam fell. The difference is we now have fallen human beings trying to interpret the utterly trustworthy and reliable record of God revealed in nature, and likewise the utterly trustworthy and reliable record in nature. And so human sin can cause us to misinterpret the record of nature. Human sin can also cause us to misinterpret uh, the record of scripture. It applies both ways. And mm -hmm. so I look at them as being equally tainted uh, by human sin, but what God has revealed is utterly trustworthy and reliable. And where I probably also would disagree, it's not just that nature reveals the attributes of God and the existence of God, it actually shows us the outline of how God tends to redeem uh, us human beings unto himself. I mean, as I look at the book of Job, I see that both Job and Elihu, drawing from what they saw in the record of nature, was able to get enough understanding of God's attributes, enough understanding of the law written on their heart. You know, God has written his law in the heart of every human being that they recognize their need for redeemer and were convinced that God would provide that redeemer. And so we can get that uh, literally just from looking at the record of nature I think that explains why the Bible says that every human being 
is without excuse before God. We may not all have special revelation, but we all have God's revelation in scripture. And also, I'm a real fan of the creeds. I mean, my belief is that we Christians are free to dialogue and debate over issues that are not in the creeds. But I think Christians over the centuries have done a very good job of actually pulling together the most crucial teachings in the Bible, those that are perspicuous, where God has clearly revealed himself and have codified them in these uh, creeds of the church. And this is where I think we need to be united. But what you see in the Belgic Confession, Article 2, is that God indeed has revealed himself to us through two reliable books. And it's Psalm 19, verse 4, that talks about how God has written his revelation to us upon the heavens. They're not literal letters of the alphabet, but the fact that it uses that analogy tells us that this is something just as trustworthy and reliable as what we see in the pages of Scripture. And also it's a means by which we can bring people to faith in Christ, actually show them, look, everything the Bible says about history, nature, and geography is accurate, even that which was centuries beyond uh, the authors. This is how we know these Bible authors were inspired. And so we can appeal to God's revelation in nature to bring him to the revelation of scripture. Frankly, that's how I get a lot of people to read the Bible. Hmm. Interesting. All right, well, let's let's shift here. Um, I do, I would imagine that uh, <laughs> go back and forth on, on a lot of what's going on there. Well, um, maybe, I think Jason probably agrees with a lot of what I said, so. Some of it, would you like something we're gonna disagree on? And if you don't mind, Eli, just yeah, go. briefly, um, I would say that I've never said that general revelation is tainted. I just said it's not perspicuous beyond the existence of God and God's moral law written on our hearts, because the Bible says that, that God has done that. But even, think of even the moral law written on our hearts. The Bible talks about your conscience becoming seared. You can get to the point where, where, you, where, you, where, you, where you're no longer, you're suppressing that truth and unrighteousness, which is what the Bible says in Romans 1. So I'm saying that the Bible has a clarity to it because it's propositional. It has a clarity to it that you cannot get just from nature. And uh, Psalm 19 actually compares and contrasts the, the two revelations of God. It begins with God's natural revelation in nature. And the advantage of that is it's universal. Everybody is aware of, of God's general revelation. Not everyone's aware of his special revelation. But then uh, it moves on to God's special revelation. And boy, that's that's extra special. That restores the soul. And I like the way it ends, too, because it refers to God, my rock and my redeemer. And so it's it's only the special revelation of God that can ultimately bring us knowledge of salvation. And so I think a lot of Job's statements, I don't think they were, were derived from nature. When Job said, I, I know that my redeemer lives and in the end he will stand on the earth. That's not something he drew from observing nature. That's something that God revealed to him as a special revelation that is now recorded in the Bible, which is the only remaining special revelation that we have. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Dr. Ross, go ahead. Sure, I mean, the Bible is 66 books, and this idea of clarity, uh, what it truthfully reveals, each book reveals different points with greater clarity than the other books. And likewise, I think that's true of the record of nature. I mean, I'm gonna go to Romans to try to get the specifics on how I need to deal with the sin in my life and come to Christ. Uh, but I'm gonna go to physics to figure out how I should uh, study microwaves. 
And so there's a clarity in the record of nature that we don't see in scripture. There's a clarity in scripture that we don't see in nature. They deal with different subject matter. But my point is where they overlap, they concur. There's total concurrence where they overlap. But I think people make a mistake in thinking that they totally overlap. No, I think that's, I mean, just like the 66 books of the Bible don't totally overlap, that's not the case. But also I'm concerned about people who think that the overlap between nature and scripture is like this, where they barely touch one another. Very common view today. I'm sure Jason is aware of this, and that's something we repudiate at Reasons to Believe. We see significant overlap. And where they overlap, both are clear in what they reveal. Hmm. Well, I'm, you know, I'm curious then. Uh, um, I, I kind of resonate with what you just said there, uh, Dr. Ross. Obviously, the Bible can provide foundations for science and tell us the way the world is in a general sense, but you don't go to the Bible to go into some of those more scientific details. What, what would you say to that, Dr. Lyle, to, to his point that he made there? It's not the Bible's purpose. The Bible's purpose is to teach us about uh, the history that is necessary for understanding God's plan of redemption. That's why I don't go to the Bible to understand how microwaves work. But if the Bible spoke on microwaves, it would be right and it would be clearer than anything else we could get in nature. Okay. Because it took a long time for human beings to figure out how microwaves work. So it's not something that's just immediately obvious. It's not something that is propositional, something that is perspicuous, something that is immediately clear. It took a lot, a great deal of experimentation to do that. And I'm all for science. I know, I know Hugh, and we're on the same page there. We like science. But I would say that that's not... Yeah. There's a difference between science and general revelation. There's a difference between general revelation and special revelation. Let's make sure we don't confuse those different issues. The Bible is exceptionally clear in telling us the history of the universe and telling us the important things that we need to know in order to be redeemed, basically. And it has a, a clarity beyond anything you could find in nature on those issues. Uh, on, on issues where the Bible doesn't speak, of course, it's fine to use science to make a good guess. And sometimes we find out we're wrong and, you know, new data comes along. That's the nature of the beast. That's the nature of science. It's a fallible tool, but it's a good one that God gave us. And it should be used not to override the clear teachings of the scripture, but to provide insights in other areas. Mm. Okay. Now, suppose we're driving a car and we're all in a car together. I'm going to stop and we're going to turn a completely different direction. Uh, Dr. Lyle, how old is the universe and what is your scientific evidence for that? Or... Well, you know what? Let's keep it there. I was going to add another, but let's not conglomerate the question and make it more complicated. I can do that. I'm a teacher, so I talk a lot. So I'm going to try to keep myself, uh, you know, to a, a minimal, uh, minimalized question. So um, how old is the universe and um, what evidence uh, do you have to support uh, your conclusion? Yeah, I think it's about 6,000 years old. I can't put an exact date on it. Okay. I don't believe it's millions or billions of years old. With regard to science, actually, when you ask about the age of something, you're not asking a science question. Okay. You're asking a history question because you're asking when something came into existence, how long ago. You're asking about the past, and science is about the present. It's about the current, present operation of the universe. And so uh, now that's not to say that we can't use the tools of science to make some guesses about the past. I think that's appropriate. But my point is, if you have a history book, that's what you turn to first. I believe we have a history book that gives us not the date of creation, but it gives us sufficient information that we can at least approximate that in terms of God creating in six days and the genealogies and so on. So that's where I get the 6,000 years. Is there science that lines up with that? Absolutely. And uh, it, maybe we should, I don't know how much depth to go into here because how do we make scientific age estimates? Usually the way it's done is there's some process that's going on in present that happens 
not necessarily at a constant rate, but at a predictable rate, like radioactive decay is not constant, it's an exponential decay. And the assumption is that it's always been that way. And so that's what you do when you make an age estimate. You assume that the process has continued in the past as, as it is today. That's a uniformitarian assumption. And if you do that for short periods of time, it tends to work pretty well. If you, if you say the candle has burned about an inch in the last hour, so I, I believe that an hour ago it was an inch taller, that's probably a pretty good assumption. If you extrapolate and back and say, yeah, and therefore centuries ago it was taller than Mount Everest, not such a good assumption because at some point those conditions changed. At some point somebody lit the candle. And so what we usually do with, um, in terms of presenting evidence for a young universe is we'll say, let's, let's take the secular time scale, the billions of years, and make their assumptions, their uniformitarian sta standards, and show that it leads to an inconsistency. So that's what we in logic call a reductio ad absurdum. It's refuting a worldview by assuming it and showing that it leads to an inconsistency. Take carbon dating, for example. Uh, C14 has a half-life of 5,700 years. And uh, it turns out if you had the entire Earth uh, made up of nothing but C14, with that short a half-life, in one million years, you'd not have a single atom left. All, it would all disintegrate into, uh, uh, into nitrogen. Now, if, if there's no new source of C14. Now, it's produced in the upper atmosphere as cosmic rays bombard nitrogen atoms, converts them into C14, and uh, plants absorb it because they take in the carbon dioxide, and then we eat the plants, or animals eat the plants, and we eat the animals. Either way, we get new carbon in us. That's where we get our carbon from, and a small fraction of that is C14. Uh, so it's just, uh, it's like one in a trillion. It's a very small fraction, which is, which is good because we don't want to be glowing or anything like that. So uh, you're, you're, you're all unstable. <laughs> I like to tell people that a little bit. You're all a little bit unstable. Uh, and the rate at which that decays, if something were buried deep in the earth and it were millions of years old, it shouldn't have any C14 left in it because C14 is produced in the upper atmosphere. You, you can't really get it into fossils, things like that, that are buried deep down that are shielded from cosmic rays. You can get a little bit from radioactivity, but not very much. And so the fact that we, when we dig up things, when we dig up fossils, and if we carbon date them, lo and behold, you're going to get ages that are consistent with the biblical time scale. Maybe not exactly the same, because again, the point is not to get the true age. The point is to show an inconsistency in the the secular, the the deep time time Dr. scale. Dr. Lyle, though, but what about okay? So you're talking about carbon dating, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Ross can go into this in more detail. And once you're finished summarizing and I finished asking this question. We'll let Dr. Ross lay out, but you can continue on if you have a couple more points you want to go through. Um, but with regards to carbon dating, suppose um, Dr. Ross agreed with you. Like, yeah, okay, we can't get an accurate reading necessarily through carbon dating, but there are so many other indicators that point to um, an older universe. How would you uh, bring that together with uh, the different, the, the other, excuse me, the other uh, ways in which one can determine um, age, so to speak? What we're, what we're debating here is a worldview issue. It's, a, it's not about the evidence, it's about how the evidence should be interpreted. Okay. And the only way to refute a worldview is with a reductio ad absurdum. You assume the worldview and show that it leads to an inconsistency. Okay. And so the best way to disprove, to show, see, I don't think there is any evidence for an old universe, and we can talk about that. But I would say that what I do when I present evidence for a young universe, I assume for the sake of argument, uniformitarianism, I'll give you naturalism, that the universe came in, you know, it, it just, there's no God, everything happens at constant rates and so on. And you still end up with, in many cases, uh, ages that are much younger than the secular timescale would allow. Mm -hmm. Now the secularist, if he's, if he's gonna argue properly, he should assume catastrophism and supernatural creation, and then argue that under those conditions, 
nonetheless, there are some instances where you still get millions of years. But the problem is that I, I'm not aware of any case where that happens. In other words, all the arguments that are for the millions or billions of years assume to some extent uniformitarianism and to some extent naturalism, things that I would reject, you see. And so it begs the question because they're assuming their own worldview and then arguing that that demonstrates that my worldview is wrong, but they've already assumed that at the outset. Does, does that make sense? Yes, yes. Okay. Dr. Ross, um, how old is the universe? What's your evidence? And then we'll get into this issue of presuppositions. I think that's a very important point in this debate. Yeah, the age of the universe, 13.79 billion, plus or minus 0 0.05 billion. And uh, you know, listening to what Jason is saying is, uh, it's not a debate between catastrophism and uniformitarianism. I mean, people like myself believe in both, is that according to the Bible, the laws of physics don't change. And uh, in astronomy, we can look back in time and see if they haven't changed. I think what impresses me about astronomy is that we human beings are living at the one time in the history of the universe where we can directly observe the entirety of the history of the universe. Just like God gave us the Bible so we can read all 66 books, not just a part of it, but the whole of it. Likewise, you put us human beings here at the optimal time. I mean, if we were placed in the universe five billion years earlier than what we, what we are, we'd only be seeing the last two thirds of the history of the universe. There wouldn't be adequate time for life in a cosmic creation event to travel on the space surface of the universe and reach our telescope. Likewise, we were placed here later, dark energy would be speeding that information away from us at greater than the velocity of light. So I think God loved us to such a degree, he wanted to make sure we could read 100% of the history book of nature. And you know, we're both astronomers. As astronomers, we have no access to the present. 100% of our data comes from the past. It's because we're looking at distant objects and it takes light a finite amount of time to reach our telescopes. The farther away we look, the farther back in time we see. And what impresses me is God placed us here at the one location in the universe, because that too is fine-tuned. Anywhere else in the universe, we wouldn't have access to 100% of the past history of the universe. So God has revealed himself through the words of scripture about what he's done in the past, but he's also revealed himself to us directly it's not indirect, it's a direct tool. We can go back in time and verify the Bible got it right when it said no change in the laws of physics. I mean, every distant galaxy and star I look at, I measure the laws of physics and measure to be identical to we measure here in the lab. And I think this is crucial because every young Earth creations model I've looked at critically depends on dramatically altered laws of physics either at the fall of Adam or the flood or both or other times. Yet the Bible is explicit and the book of nature explicit that that did not happen. We got the measurements and the texts in the Bible to show that. Mm -hmm. Now, isn't your interpretation uh, from an old earth perspective, uh, I'm sorry, isn't your interpretation of the data of science um, based upon your, your presupposition of your particular interpretation of the biblical passages, right? What role do your presuppositions play in all this? In other words, if you're misinterpreting the scriptures, how is that going to affect then how you come to the data since you wanna be a biblically informed Christian, especially when you're engaging in science? What, what role do your presuppositions play in this, you think? Well, again, I mentioned that, you know, I'm multifaceted in my apologetics. 
Okay. I'm not just an evidentialist. I'm also a presuppositionalist. Uh, I'm also uh, look at the historical method. Uh, I like that. Uh, you know, I like the logic. I mean, there's different approaches, and I think we're to use all of them. And so I don't want to be pigeonholed here. Uh, but as an evidentialist, I say, okay, what does the scripture say? And do we have any external proof that that is exactly the case? I think that's true with the laws of physics. One reason why we can trust the record of nature is that God has told us in the book of scripture, we can trust it. I haven't changed the laws of physics. He says, I'm an unchangeable God, Jeremiah 33. Uh, you humans change, but I don't change. I'm immutable. As evidence, look at the laws that govern the heavens and the earth. As they don't change, I don't change. That's one of several biblical texts that tell us about the constancy of physics. And this is something unique to Christianity. Christianity, compared to the other major religions of the world, actually tells us that we can trust the record of nature to reveal truth. It's not going to deceive us. It's impossible for God to lie or deceive in either revelation. So I anticipate the fine consistency. And so I read the text. I look at nature and say, okay, is the nature saying the same thing? It is. And saying it, I mean, that's one way I reach out to my fellow scientists. And, you know, look at these texts unchanging physics, look at these astronomical observations. Uh, these laws and constants of physics are reliable to 16 places of the decimal over the history of the universe. So that's remarkable evidence that the Bible thousands of years ago predicted future scientific discoveries with 100% accuracy. That's just one of hundreds of examples I could give you. But I think God intended that we use those examples to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Dr. Lyle, is there something you want to speak uh, there? I, I, the temptation is I, people who know me, I'm very interested in methodology. And, and it, it, I, I probably would take issue with the notion of using a little bit of presuppositionalism, evidential. I, I don't think one could jump in and out. That's just my, my view there. I do think that when a presuppositionalist, for example, appeals to evidence, he's not appealing to evidentialism. And like fashion, when an evidentialist appeals to presuppositions, he's not necessarily adopting presuppositionalism. So I probably would take some, some issue there. Uh, so, but without getting into the whole method, methodology debate, um, what, what do you have to say to what he said, said there? I kind of understand what he's saying, generally speaking. I'm, I'm kind of tracking with him. Um, but what, what are some dis disagreements you have with Dr. Ross on, on what he said there, if you have any? Well, I, th I thought he was supposed to be giving evidence for an old universe. I didn't hear any. Um, I, I, heard that, oh. <laughs> I heard that presupposed, but I didn't hear an argument for it. Um, and, and we can come back to it. I mean, that's fine. Uh, sure, sure. The, that, the only thing that got close to it was the assumption that starlight takes a long period of time to reach the Earth. And that isn't, it's actually not just an assumption. It's a, um, uh, when, when you know something about the physics of Einstein, you can't just say, well, it takes a million years for light to get from here to there. You can't say that because it depends on the reference frame and it depends on your synchrony convention. And Huras has assumed a particular synchrony convention and he's assumed a particular reference frame, presumably Earth but it wouldn't have to be. From light's point of view, every trip is instantaneous. So from light's point of view, it takes no time at all to get from any distant galaxy to the earth. And that is a very well-established physics. Okay. And it turns out there are synchrony conventions that you can use that, that even from earth's reference frame, get the starlight here instantly. And this is well known in, well, it's well known among people who are, who are uh, familiar with Einstein's relativity, who specialize in that. It's not known. I, I'm not, I'm not trying to insult you by saying you know, you're ignorant or anything. It's, this is something that's well known if, to specialists on relativity. It's called, the, it's called the conventionality thesis, 
or the conventionality of distant simultaneity. And so I would say that, no, you're not really looking back in time, but even if you wanted to use the Einstein synchrony convention and say, okay, if I'm looking at a light year out, I'm looking a year in the past, that still doesn't give me any data in terms of here in the past, right? And so you're, it, 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 the point is, wherever you look in space, you're looking at one point in time, and therefore you don't, you don't have history. With regard to the laws of physics changing, I, I don't think they change generally, but of course, God can do a miracle. God can temporarily suspend a law of physics. That's fine. Uh, promises like the passage in Jeremiah, I think was the passage you were um, sort of, well, paraphrasing, which is fine, uh, that, the, or, that there are ordinances of heaven and earth, but those were enacted at some point. Those were created at some point. At some point, God started ruling the universe in a particular way, and you can't go back beyond that. You can't say, well, the, no, the laws of physics, they go back to infinity, back to eternity past. No, because there's not an eternity past. And so when God created the universe, and, and even during the creation week, he's doing things that today we would say maybe violate laws of nature. He's speaking into existence new forms of animals and so on. He's speaking stars into existence, things that, that he's not doing today because today he's resting. He's still in that rest. He's not in the seventh day, but he's still in the rest. And so uh, uh, there is a difference between looking at creation and perhaps the fall. And then subsequent to that, it's in Genesis 8.22 where God promises the cycles of nature will continue in the futures they have in the past as long as the earth remains. That's the other bookend. And so you can't go, you can't go indefinitely into the future and you can't go back past creation, which I would say scripturally is a few thousand years ago. If you do that, you're going to get an incorrect age estimate because you've, you've gone past the initial conditions or the boundary conditions that God has set forth in scripture. All right, so lest, lest we forget, okay, uh, Dr. Ross, why don't you give some evidence? Uh, if you, I want, at this point of the discussion, I want to disappear ever so slightly and allow you guys to talk this out. So what is the evidence for an old earth? And uh, Dr. Lyle, uh, why don't you guys have a conversation, interject when you think there's a point of like, well, wait a minute, and kind of have a conversation here, and let's see where it goes, because I think... Um, uh, I think this is an important thing. Both of you guys have presuppositions, and uh, just like it was evident with Dr. Ross's assumption of uh, the speed of light, um, Dr. Lyle has his presuppositions. Why don't you have a little a conversation with regards to the scientific evidence? So, Dr. Ross, why don't you lay out uh, scientifically why you think uh, the, the universe, the Earth, uh, is much older than what Dr. Lyle thinks? Well, both of you have brought up this idea of the synchrony convention on the velocity of light. And this is a major part of the debate we had last time that Jason and I met. And in that debate, I said, this is testable. Well, the tests have since been done. I mean, for example, we have uh, distant supernova that have been gravitationally lensed by an intervening galaxy cluster. And it basically shows that the velocity of light is the same in all directions. You know, Jason was making the point in our previous debate that the velocity of light is infinite coming towards Earth half the velocity of light going away. We now know that's incorrect by direct observation. If I could jump in, because I've already answered that. And in fact, I have an article on my website, just a few, you go back just a few issues back on the website, and I, I deal with the idea of supernova and the light coming from a supernova, and it's perfectly consistent with the anisotropic synchrony convention. And, and just so oh, you don't agree with you, Jason. Oh, they do. And in fact, I show the numbers. I actually do the math in that, in that article. So have a look at it. And um, it, but just to give you that another thing, too, I just just because you've slightly misrepresented my position. And I want to I want to clarify that a little bit. Um, I'm not suggesting that the speed of light, the one way speed of light is this or that or the other. I'm not saying it's instantaneous or it's the same as the round trip speed. I'm saying it's a humanly stipulated convention. 
And so it's something that we get to choose and that tells us how to synchronize distant clocks. And you know where that idea comes from? The idea that we're free to choose the one-way speed of light. It comes from Albert Einstein. In his book on relativity, his primer book, just the basic relativity on page 22, he talks about this. He says that light requires the same time to traverse the path A to B as for, or A to M as for B to M, talking about opposite directions, is in reality neither a supposition nor a hypothesis about the physical nature of light, but a stipulation which I can make of my own free will in order to arrive at a definition of simultaneity. And that's that might be slightly paraphrased, but that's pretty close to what he says. So this idea of, the, of being able to test the one-way speed of light can't be done. And you should you should read up on this just because it's interesting. Even if it, you just put the apologetics aside, it's just interesting. I, stuff. I don't think you're interpreting it correctly, Jason. And you know the astronomer, astronomical community is with me on this. No, they're not. Sarkar Satchel published a paper in the secular literature that uses the anisotropic synchrony convention. And Sarkar is an adamant evolutionist. He believes in deep time. He just sees that the one-way speed of light cannot be measured objectively. And by the way, if you're able to do it, Hugh, you'll get a Nobel Prize. If you can measure it objectively, <laughs> the one-way speed of light, without first begging the question, without assuming it at first. Uh, a good paper you should read on this is John Winnie's paper, uh, Spe uh, Special Relativity Without One-Way Velocity Assumptions. Make sure you've read that, because if you haven't, we're not going to be able to have a uh, an intelligible conversation. Let's give Dr. Ross an opportunity to kind of speak to that there. Go, go ahead, Dr. Ross. Well, okay, you've been asking me all along to present some scientific evidence for an old Earth. I mean, I think one thing I find impressive is when you look at the deep ice cores and sediment cores, we can actually see the Milankovitch cycles. In other words, the cycles that are being driven by the gravitational perturbations on the Earth's orbit. This is Newton's laws of physics actually reflected uh, in these deep ice cores and sediment cores, basically showing us 40 cycles of the variation uh, in the eccentricity variation of Earth's orbit. So that's evidence that, uh, you know, we the last four million years have actually seen these cycles in the deep ice cores. And I know the argument is that these ice cores are not annual layers, but we can actually prove that by finding uh, volcanic uh, dust signatures of volcanoes that have erupted in recorded history. And the very fact that we can see uh, these Milankovitch cycles, I think is strong uh, evidence. I would also argue that the quantity of biogenic uh, marble and limestone, 76 quadrillion tons of biogenic limestone and marble in the crust of the earth, that testifies of a huge abundance of light, uh, such an enormous abundance of light. There's no way that the solar constant can explain that in just thousands of years. We're looking at a minimum of hundreds of millions of years to lay up that much biodeposits in the crust of the earth. And then the solar luminosity stability. I've just written an article on this making the point that uh, our sun is more stable in its luminosity stability and its flaring stability than any other known star that we see in our galaxy. And uh, you know, just as we, and I'm sure that Jason Lyle's taken a course on the interior physics of stars. And what we realize is there's only a certain time in the burning history of a star where it's possible to get that extreme climate stability. And it's something that's been verified by observations in neutrinos coming out of the sun. In fact, the paper was just published a few weeks ago where they actually can see not only the neutrinos from the hydrogen uh, to helium fusion reaction, but the carbon nitrogen oxygen fusion reaction as well. And so this tells us that the sun must be halfway through 
its nuclear burning cycle, which means it's 4.5 billion years of age. And then we've also talked about the light travel time problem. I mean, the fact is that uh, we have uh, trigonometric measurements of galaxies as far away as 470 million light years. And so just using plain geometry, a direct distance measure, and looking at the velocity of light, uh, we know uh, that the, uh, you know, that galaxy's light has been traveling to us for 470 million years. And this is something that was a major source of a debate. We had a televised debate between me and Danny Faulkner that was reviewed by 13 evangelical research astronomers. They were part of this. And a lot of the debate was just on, you know, how compelling are the light travel times for a universe that must be billions of years old. The statements on our website, just go to astronomer statement at reasons.org and you'll see uh, what the adjudicators of the debate had to say. Okay, let me briefly respond to that, if it's okay with you, Eli. Go ahead, uh, go ahead. What we heard in all those arguments, and I, I knew this would happen, we heard the assumptions of uniformitarianism and naturalism. Uniformitarianism, the idea that today we see cycles and today there's good evidence that they're annual. The assumption is they've always been annual. That's a uniformitarian assumption. That it's linked in with Milankovitch, the Milankovitch theory, that is a scandal and a half. Uh, Dr. Jake Hebert at ICR has been researching the Milankovitch theory and he's blown it apart. It's, it's circular and it's circular inconsistent. Make sure you have a look at some of this paper. I'm not gonna go into details because frankly, it's incredibly boring, but Jake likes it. So, uh, but, but, uh, but my point is though that's based on uniformitarianism. I'm sorry, did I talk over you, Eli? That's okay. Um, I, I, you said something that, that caught my attention here. Uh, you said that he had the assumption of uniformitarianism, which I, I kind of detected, but again, he can expand on, on that, whether that's something he was doing or not. Um, but you did say the assumption of naturalism. And so I mean, that I'm, I'm sure Dr. Ross would, would disagree with. You're not, I don't think you would think no. that you're assuming naturalism. Maybe uniformitarianism, maybe. If, if it, are, were you assuming that because you think that uniformitarian principle is also supported in scripture. Is that the case, Dr. Ross? Yes, I'm not a naturalist, never have been. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that, can that's- Can I clarify you just so we can, we can, we're on the same page. When you said that the sun has to be a certain age, you assumed that God could not have supernaturally created it already with the right materials for it to be stable. And so you, you didn't, you, I'm, I'm sure you didn't intentionally mean to assume naturalism. That's a naturalistic assumption. Yeah, but that's an assumption that's testable. I mean, I can actually look at the physics of stars and say, okay, does it have the signature of being created just 6,000 years ago? Or does it have all the signs of having been fusing uh, energy? So you're, for you're telling me that God could not create a star that you couldn't distinguish from an old star, that God couldn't supernaturally create a star in six days that would be dis that, that you would be unable to distinguish from a star that's actually billions of years old, that God cannot do that. Well, you're putting yourself into a trap because I could use the same argument to say, you know, everything that I've been experiencing in my brain, which makes me think I've been alive for 60 years, I was just placed there one second ago. I'm really not 70 years of age. I'm really just three days old. Uh, but the Bible explicitly- How would, you, how would you refute that then? Pardon me? How would you refute your own argument? Well, because as I, I read the Bible, it tells us we can actually trust what we see in nature. We can trust the memories in our head. I mean, we're not being deceived. It's impossible for God to lie or deceive. 
And so, you know, God could do all those things, but now we're looking at a deceptive God. And the Bible explicitly tells us it's impossible for God to lie or deceive. Therefore, I'm willing to trust my memories. I'm willing to trust what I see uh, in the record of nature. I'm willing to trust what I see in the Bible because the Bible tells me that's something I can trust and something I can put to the test. And so if indeed everything was just created instantly five seconds ago, uh, there would be signatures that I could check to see if that indeed was true. Uh, I don't no, actually, you couldn't. That's, that's a that's a presupposition. By the way, you and I are on the same page, obviously. We don't believe that God actually created six seconds ago. But my point is, he does have the power to have done that. And with our memories. Uh, and so he could have created the universe in six days. He's got the power to do that. Uh, the only thing that would be deceptive is if he told us in his word that he didn't do it that way, right? Because you can't see age. You look at a star and you say, here's what I think. I think that it takes a certain amount of time for the star to come to this, these conditions. But unless God told you that, he's not being deceptive to make a star as it is. What about the first trees that God made that were supernaturally made? Did they have rings in them? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but if they did, you, you'd say, well, God's deceptive. No, it's just part of the structure of the tree. You got to start somewhere. And you, you always can assume that, that you know, a, a particular structure like a tree came about from a sapling, but the first trees were not made that way. They were made bearing fruit already. Adam was made as an adult. You might say, well, it, God's deceptive making Adam as an adult. No, it, because you got to start somewhere. It wouldn't make sense for him to start as a baby. No, but God's not going to put false signs of age on Adam. So no, he, and I would argue he hasn't anywhere in the universe. There's no, right. false, no signs of age anywhere of, of millions right. of years. But if you look at me, you'll see signs of age. They're on my face. You'll see liver spots. Uh, and I could argue, well, God just put that there to make you think that I'm really old when in fact I'm not. And my argument is God doesn't behave that way. He's not going to put liver spots on Adam to make you think he's 30 years of age. I believe that if we were there on site, we would measure his cholesterol and his bloodstream would be 60 milligrams uh, per liter. It wouldn't be the 120 of an adult. We wouldn't see chipped teeth. We wouldn't see gray hair. He would have been brand new. I mean, the difference is that Adam did not come from a from a woman. Since he comes from the womb of a woman. Created. Yes. Yeah. That, that's my point. That's my point. And don't confuse age with proxies for age, things like liver spots and so on. The only reason you associate that with age is because you've seen a lot of people and we, we all have, and, and you know that certain people have certain ages and you say, oh, that's characteristic of that age. But if Adam had, if hypothetically Adam had liver spots, it would not occur to him to think of that as an indicator of age, right? Because it just, he, you know, he, he has no experience with that. He has no experience with how people age. And so if you ask Adam, how old do you think you look? He'd say, well, apparently this is what a one second year old looks like. Because do you, he, think, he had do you think he had worn teeth? Say again? Do you think Adam had scar tissue? Do you think he had worn teeth? No, I don't. He, he the point is, it, we have experience today because we can compare lots of different people and we can see, oh, here's certain things that are proxies for age, but you can't do that with the universe because we only got the one. So you, it's not like you can say, this universe looks about 13 billion years old because when I compare it with all these other universes of various ages, it looks most like this other one that's 13 billion years old. You oh, can't but, do that. Uh, you know, we got stars, we got galaxies and astronomers. Yes, I believe that God supernaturally created those. And I think that's the difference between us. You, you hold a kind of a naturalistic view when it comes to star formation, do you not? Well, why do we see stars that appear to span an age range of 1 to 13 billion years? They all look about 6,000 years old. Nah, okay. Yeah. We can have a debate with that in front of a community <laughs> of astronomers. You you're confusing ages with proxies. You can't see age. You're making a presupposition 
that the secular evolutionary stellar evolution is right. And therefore you look at the star and say, okay, it must be this far along its cycle. But I don't assume that. I just assume that God created the stars kind of like kind of like they are. They've changed a little bit in 6,000 years, not too much. Some of them have blown up. Well, but, if all the stars are in fact just 6,000 years old or younger, wouldn't they all look the same? No. They don't. They don't. They all have signatures of age. It spans. If, star, if stars were made 6,000 years, God would make them different because God says one star differs from another in glory. Uh, all you know, the animals were all made at the same on the same day, but they don't look identical. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Well, I could see him making all different colors, but why would he make them look like they all had different ages? Don't supposition. They don't look like they have different ages. Well, every astronomer I know of says they do. Even the Earth astronomers like <laughs> so. I mean, for example, we look on the Earth and uh, we see the isotopes of plutonium decay but there's no plutonium on the face of the earth. And we look at those isotopes, they tell us that the rate of plutonium K when plutonium was present on the earth is identical to what it is right now. I mean, why would God supernaturally just make it all look like uh, that plutonium that disappeared billions of years ago, if in fact the earth is only thousands of years old? Again, you're arguing for a deceptive God. Oh, I, I would say that you are because uh, the universe doesn't look old. You're taking secular assumptions about how things age, secular assumptions about radioactive decay, assuming uniformitarianism, and you're saying, and see, we get, a, we get a result that's older than the biblical age. Well, of course you do. You've assumed that the Bible's wrong in terms of its time scale, and then you conclude that the Bible's but wrong. It's the Bible that teaches a uniformitarian principle. It tells us that the laws in and fact, it, it, In fact, that's Peter specifically argues against uniformitarianism. In Second Peter chapter three, says this: it's the scoffers that say all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They deny a global flood. He's not referring to the law of gravity, for example. I mean, as you say, he's basically no. saying, "Hey, we think things have been the same in terms of human history. They change." That's well, a change. Specifically, he's referring to the denial of the global flood, which was a geologically catastrophic event where all the high hills under the whole heavens were covered with water, as the Bible says. That's what Peter says people would deny in favor of uniformitarianism. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. All right, I'm going to interrupt real quick um, because uh, Dr. Ross has been giving his uh, perspective on the evidence for the old earth. Um, what is your, again, I think it could be interpreted by some that Dr. Lyle is uh, critiquing Dr. Ross's perspective, but hasn't really definitively laid out reasons to believe that the that the universe is younger. So, uh, I mean, perhaps you touched on it before, but why don't why don't you um, give a little bit more of a, of your positive case, and and perhaps Dr. Ross can can interject at points where he disagrees and give the reasons why. Okay, and as I pointed out earlier. Uh, my primary reason for believing in a young universe is because we have the record of God's word, which I interpret grammatically, historically, exegetically. Okay. And I believe that when you do that, you get about about 6,000 years. You can't put an exact date on it, but you get something like that. Okay. Uh, in, or, in terms of the science, the kind of argument I would make te would tend to be a reductio ad absurdum. I would assume for the sake of hypothesis, naturalism and uniformitarianism and show that it leads to an inconsistent result. And if I could expand a little bit on carbon dating, which I mentioned earlier, uh, that that is mind blowing to me that everything we find in the fossil record, no matter how far down it is, if it's got carbon in it, it's got C14 in it. You can take chunks of coal. Coal beds are supposed to be 100 million years old in the secular timeline. You you, you will find carbon in them, C14, a half-life 5,700 years. And oh, there should be zero C14 
Go ahead, Hugh. Uranium and thorium potassium in the crust of the Earth. So in yeah. the interior of the Earth, you get carbon-14 being made continuously. So you're going to no, get a background level of carbon-14 no matter what you date. No, no, no. Uh, and the reason for that, it, but that's something that was looked into by the, the Rate Research Project. Uh, where they had a number of different scientists look into that. And they found that, that, by the way, that in principle, what you're saying could happen if we had about 100,000 times more radioactive elements on Earth than we actually have. And uh, just maybe for, for the laymen out there that are watching this, basically you can think of carbon, uh, the carbon decay, C14 decay, think of a milk carton and I, and I cut a big hole in it and, and the milk's just gushing out. It's got a fast decay rate. And uh, you can think of th these other forms, potassium, argon, rubidium, strontium, and so on, as a milk and I poke a little hole in it. And so the, the milk just, it just drips out, okay? It's got a slower decay rate. And so the question is, why do we still have milk jars that are you know, half full if they've been gushing for millions of years, it wouldn't make sense. And, and what Hugh has suggested, and it could work in principle if there were more radioactive elements, is that, well, there, there, there are so many milk jugs that have these little streams that they, they fill in, they fill into the, the carbon one, so they replenish it. And so it, basically, if you have a lot of very slow streams, you can replenish one uh, major stream. And that would work if there were about 100,000 times more radioactive elements in the earth than are actually there. Well, but in fact, C14 is in the upper atmosphere where it's produced by cosmic rays. And the Earth, uh, it, it, once you get down deep into the crust of the Earth, it's totally shielded from cosmic rays, which is why they do the neutrinos experiments underwater. Yeah, it's shielded from the cosmic rays, but you know there's plenty of radioactive material there. And the real point was the nitrogen. They now realize there's significant quantities of nitrogen in the crust of the Earth. So it's completely consistent with the interior of the Earth being billions of years old. If there were 100,000 times more radioactive elements. We don't need 100,000 times more. <laughs> the Earth, as you probably are aware, is super endowed with uranium, thorium, and potassium. We got about 630 times as much thorium as other rocky planets. So there's plenty of radioactive material there. The question is, is it there in the right place? The latest research papers tell us it is in the right place. The nitrogen is there and therefore getting a background level of 57 to 58,000 year carbon-14 date. And incidentally, you only need a very minuscule amount of carbon-14 to get that kind of a date. But that explains why ancient diamonds, ancient zircons all come up with the same carbon-14 date. It's simply the background radiation that we would anticipate given the interior of the Earth. You're trying to fill a, a, a mug that's gushing out with little dripping and it's not gonna work the rate of radioactive decay of these heavier elements is very slow, and that's why it can't recharge uh, the C14 amount in any significant amount that could be detected, unless there were a lot more of it. Well, that's an assertion you're making, but the scientific literature doesn't agree with you. It's, and it's published in the peer-reviewed uh, The Rate Book. Have a look at it. I, I've read The Rate Book. You need to look at the latest research papers on the interior physics of the... Uh, it's not going to change the physics cue. The nuclear cross-section of these heavier elements is tiny compared to that of, of C14. And so you can't, you can't recharge a fast decayer with slow decayers unless you had millions of times more of them. I mean, it's not gonna change the physics. I'm telling you, there's plenty of that they've radioactive material to make it work. The published literature supports that. The rate study is quite old right now. And incidentally, the rate study itself said if the radiometric decay rates don't dramatically change at the flood or the fall or both, then the Earth and the universe must be billions of years old. That concession is made repeatedly in the rate study. 
Well, we think it did change at the uh, flutter at the fall. And that doesn't mean the laws of physics had to change, but there are certain things, you know, the strong nuclear constant, you change it just a little bit. It has an enormous effect on the rate of radioactive decay. That's in uh, Eugene Chaffin's well, chapter. measure the radiometric decay rates in the past and they refute what the rate book says. You can only measure stuff in the present. You can only measure stuff in the present. You can make some assumptions and make a guess about the past. You can't measure the past. You can measure the past. In astronomy, you can only measure the past. I don't know the present. You're assuming the Einstein synchrony convention, and you're assuming that Earth's the reference frame. And I've, as I've already explained to you, from light's point of view, every trip is instantaneous. If you ask a photon, how, how long ago did you leave that galaxy? The answer would be zero. Are you, are you aware of this? Well, let me ask you this. When we look at the sun, do we see the sun as it is right now, or do we see it as it was eight minutes ago? Well, it depends on which synchrony convention you use. If you're using the anisotropic synchrony convention, we're seeing as it is right now. If you're using the Einstein synchrony convention, it's eight minutes ago. And Einstein would say those are both equally legitimate conventions. Yeah, but again, these measurements of supernova actually established. And I refuted that on the website. You need to take a look at it, Hugh. And, and, well, and I, I will- I, I will, disagree uh, with your refutation, and so do the astronomers who wrote the paper on that, that, that supernova. Again, they saw three separate supernova eruptions from the same event over a three-year period of time. Let me bring up my website because I don't know I don't know what else to do here because this what you're saying has been refuted. And it's been refuted by me, it's been refuted by others too. But the fact is you cannot measure the one-way speed of light um, without circular assumptions. And this is well established in the physics literature. It's called the conventionality thesis. A good book to read on it would be the one by um, Max Jammer called, uh, what's it called? Conventions of Simultaneity from Antiquity to Einstein. You need to read this literature, Hugh, or we're not gonna get anywhere. You're, you're obviously not familiar well, with this. I shared this with you uh, on the first debate we made, namely that, look, okay, if you want to have this kind of a technical debate, we need to do it in front of a trained audience. And so I'm willing to do with you what I did with Jason or with uh, Danny Faulkner. Let's have a, a public debate in front of a panel of evangelical research astronomers and uh, get their judgment on the debate. What you said is very revealing. Audience, huh? What you've said is very revealing because you see it reveals our different standards. Your standard for what determines truth is minds of men. My standard's the word of God. That is the fundamental difference between our two perspectives. No, it isn't because I believe in the authority of scripture just as much as you do. It's a difference of interpretation. I of experts to decide these things. I go okay. to the- okay. You're, you've got a PhD. Go ahead. Sorry. I apologize. Um, but, um, and this is just coming from me. I'm not taking sides with anything. But if we do appeal to scholars who agree with you, isn't that going to be based upon the presuppositions that they bring to this issue? So that if they agree with the presuppositions that you have, which are related to how you interpret Genesis, that's going to affect how they interpret the data. So wouldn't the real debate be over the presuppositions uh, with which we bring to the data, which then lead to the the particular conclusions uh, that we come to. Well, Eli, what I'm bringing up is if you're going to bring the level of debate to a technical area that's sure. beyond what lay people can comprehend, mm -hmm. it needs to be done in front of the peer review. Sure. So if you want to talk about, you know, how do we interpret the biblical Hebrew? Let's do that in front of people that are fluent in biblical Hebrew. That's if we true. want to talk about the astrophysics, Let's do it in front of people who actually have PhDs in the discipline. And like I did with Danny Faulkner, we actually agreed upon the astronomers 
who would be part of the adjudicating council. And so I'm prepared to make the same offer to Jason. Hugh, the, the problem is what you're discussing has already been published in the secular literature. In fact, there's a rich history of debate on the, on the um, conventionality of distance simultaneity throughout the 20th century. Uh, if you want to see someone who tried to argue for it for the position you're advocating, take a look at Malamut's paper. But that was refuted in 1999 by Sarker and Stachel. So if we're going to dialogue about this, you're going to have to you're going to have to deal in, you're going to have to dive into the literature that's already been published in the peer-reviewed literature. And if you want to publish a peer-reviewed article and debate online in a written format, I will happily do it on this issue. No, I, I've looked at those papers and I agree with the, the comments that you're making there. What I'm saying is we now have observational evidence to put this to the test. And so the fact that we see these supernova coming to us with different uh, light paths, with different angles, they're not all coming directly towards the earth. Uh, this actually gives us a way to test these ideas. And this again is in the published literature. Uh, multiple papers have been written uh, on the observation of the supernova eruption. And not in determining the one-way speed of light. They cannot do that. And even secularists will admit that. Secularists who are informed on this issue like Sarkar and Stachel, you're gonna have to look at those papers, Hugh. Well, I do agree it can't be done in a lab in a, in, on, on planet Earth, but if you've got a distant supernova that's been gravitationally lensed along the paths, and the fact that they actually take different times to reach us. So. Still won't work. One, one of the things you may be missing, and by the way, have you read my article where I refute that, just out of curiosity? I've not read your latest article. I'll take the time to do that. But, have you, read the, but I'm gonna, have you read the articles on the supernova? I, I have. I have. Uh, and that's why I know that you haven't read any of them. So, yeah. <laughs> one of the things, just to get you thinking along the right lines, Hugh, uh, I'm going to give you the partial answer. You might be assuming that in the anisotropic synchrony convention, all light that's sort of directed toward us is instantaneous. That's not the anisotropic synchrony convention, it's angle dependent. Okay. And so, light that's aimed at a little bit of an angle to you does not travel instantaneously. It'd still be faster than the round trip speed under the anisotropic synchrony convention. But it's not until it gets deflected by the galaxy that, it's, that it is now directed directly toward your line of sight. And if you calculate, and I, and I give the, the mathematical angle so you can calculate this yourself to see how long will it take for the light from this uh, star to reach this angle, there's, it's about a year different between the two angles based on the anisotropic synchrony convention. And by the way, that would have to be the case because the anisotropic synchrony convention is a coordinate system. And in general relativity, tensor equations are not affected by coordinate systems. A tensor that's valid in one coordinate system is valid in all coordinate systems. And so that's why it will be impossible to refute the, the synchrony, uh, the, the conventionality of distance simultaneity. And I, that's going over the heads of a lot of people, but I hope you'll, you'll take a look at that article. And if you have a refutation, text me, I'll respond to it, okay? All right, I do apologize. We have reached the hour and a half mark, and this is the point of the show where we take uh, questions from those who have been uh, listening in. So I, again, both of these gentlemen have written a lot in this area, and of course, they're referencing some of the uh, scientific material that, um, wh where can people access these articles that you're, like these peer-reviewed articles? Well, you can go to the NASA website, and uh, you can, because they, they actually have an archive of all the published research papers in the physical sciences. Uh, my colleague, uh, Jeffrey Zwierink, who's also an astrophysicist, he's written about this on our website. So you can get that at reasons.org. And incidentally, 
any watcher or viewer can uh, get three chapters of my books at uh, reasons.org slash Ross, including the book I wrote, A Matter of Days, on how the Bible, if you read it consistently and literally, uh, really does sustain an old earth interpretation. Hmm. All right. The article, just the articles that I mentioned, you can find them online, uh, but a, a book that summarizes all of them, it's written by Max Jammer, and it's called Conventions of Simultaneity, or con Concepts, Concepts of Simultaneity from Antiquity to Einstein, something like that. So it's by Max Jammer, and it actually summarizes a lot of the technical articles, which you can then look up. A very foundational one was written by John Winnie in the 19, I think it was 1970. It's a two-part technical paper, and it's called uh, Special Relativity Without One-Way Velocity Assumptions. It's a, it's a great paper. Um, and then there's, uh, there's another one written by Wesley Salmon. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's, like, it's spelled like the fish, so I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced. Um, and he, he kind of summarizes some of these things as well. Uh, the Sarkar and Stachel paper is interesting because they use the same convention that I use where the, the inward directed light is instantaneous. So they're using the, the, uh, the past light cone as the surface of simultaneity. And they, they're not creationists. They just do it because it, it, it has certain interesting conveniences. So uh, Sarkar and Stachel, and that was published in 1999. And, and they also refute Malament, who thought that he could measure the one-way speed of light. Um, just real quick before we get into the- Go ahead. Before we get into the audience questions, I just have a quick question for you guys that might be helpful for people. Uh, Dr. Ross and then Dr. Lyle could answer, what is the, for someone who wants to pursue this in more detail, but perhaps is, perhaps is not an academic, what is the best book on the defense of old earth creationism as you understand it? And it could be one of your own books as well. Um, that you would suggest for people who want to get a fuller grasp of your position? Well, it would be Navigating Genesis and A Matter of Days, the second edition, for offering free chapters of both books. Reasons.org slash Ross, they can get a free chapter of each book. Okay. All right. What about you, Dr. Lyle? What is the best? And uh, uh, put the Bible down just in case. <laughs> you knew I was going to do that. You knew I was going to do that. All right. Fair enough. I'm a presuppositionalist too, so I, I, with regards to apologetic methodology, I do side with Dr. Lyle. So I'm very, um, I, I know very well the joke. What's the best book? And of course, the presupper always looks like he's got the upper hand because he holds up the Bible. But I understand that you, you uh, hold uh, to the Bible as your ultimate authority as well, and we, we could all appreciate that, even though we have these differences here. But uh, with respect to the defense of the young Earth uh, perspective, uh, what book other than the Bible, which of course, obviously. Um, would be uh, a good place for people to go. I mean, it can be your own book where the young earth perspective is defended uh, biblically and scientifically. Yeah, there's several good ones. I, I would like to push my own book. It's called Under Understanding Genesis. Okay. And uh, and I in this book, it's 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 basically presuppositional hermeneutics. That's what the book is. Okay. If we take a high view of scripture, if we if we let scripture be its own best interpreter, how do we uh, interpret scripture? And it's more than just Genesis, but I do. Um, I do focus in on Genesis, and I, I also respond to some of the chapters that you wrote, Hugh, in your Navigating Genesis, which I've read. So I'd encourage people to get both. Get, I'm giving you free publicity, Hugh. Get, get Hugh's book, Navigating Genesis, and then get Understanding Genesis, and, and go to the Bible and see, see which one uh, matches up best. Right. But by the way, Dr. Lyle, it's not as though I don't own a bunch of your books. I really do. They're just not in this office. They're in, they're in my bedroom. I have another shelf. <laughs> so That's fine. All right. Um, okay. I think you guys did an excellent job. Hopefully you guys are doing good because this is where um, a lot of the questions come in. And for a lot of people, this is uh, 
uh, many people's favorite part of these interviews. So if you guys are good to go, if you want to take a nice quick gulp of, of water, there you go. Um, and we'll run through some of these, okay? All right, let's see here. Okay. Okay, let's see here. <laughs> this is a completely unrelated. Eli, what are the cups in the background? They're just cups. Leave me alone. Okay. Anyway, uh, let's get, let's get, people ask all sorts of weird questions. I want to get to, I'm sorry, I have to scroll through some of these. Um, let's see here. Whoops. Let's see here. Right, you guys can still see me. Can you hear me? We can hear you, but you we oh, lost good. my camera. My camera died. It's okay. You don't need oh. to see my people. Don't need, don't need to see my face. Um, let's see here. Wow, there all the questions were pushed down. I do apologize. Let me. Uh, let's see here. I, someone had a question on your. Okay, here is a question for Dr. Lyle. Uh, how does Dr. Lyle demonstrate that his hermeneutical principle uh, to be correct, the correct way to interpret Scripture? That's. Actually, not to be too self-promoting, but that's what the book's all about. Okay. Um, the book is about if if we want to get to the author's intention, what are the rules that we would have to follow to get to the author's intention? And it's it, some of them are pretty obvious. But uh, you know, should we should we take outside information? Do, do we look at the author's own words? Do we, you know? Because there there are some views that are just ridiculous. There's the view the um, what is it? The um, the view that every reading of a text is a misreading, and so you you can never get to the author's intention. And people that hold this view write books about it. But why would they bother? <laughs> because if you could never get to the the meaning of the the author, why would you bother writing a book where you assume that people can can understand what you're saying? Uh, so th that's what the, that's what the book is all about. It's about establishing the rules of, of hermeneutics that would be logically necessary in order for communication between two people to be possible. And so, for example, uh, when words have multiple meanings, what do we do? Because most words, even in English, most words have more than one meaning. And so how do we determine which one's the correct one? And, you know, and obviously context is going to have something to do with that. And the book gives many examples as well. But that's basically, uh, and also the other thing too, we can look at scriptural examples of where the apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit interpreted uh, Old Testament passages. And we know they're going to do it right because the Holy Spirit inspired the original passages in the first place. So that's really what the book is about. It's about how to how to read the Bible to get to the intention of the author. Okay. All right. Um, did you want to speak to that at all, Dr. Ross? Well, uh, there's 300 theologians who spent a decade trying to codify the appropriate hermeneutical principles to apply to Scripture. It was the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. And incidentally, all of their deliberations are archived at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, they wrote about a thousand pages on this. And we had reasons to believe wholeheartedly endorse all their affirmations uh, and denials with respect to the hermeneutic approach to scripture. And that's actually up on our website. People can see the principles that we hold. And uh, again, I think the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy did an outstanding job uh, researching together as to what the appropriate hermeneutics is. Actually, they get into this whole idea of evidentialism and presuppositionalism. I think you both would really enjoy that. And uh, a couple of years ago, I participated in a Four Views book on creation, evolution, and intelligent design. And I was the only one of the four authors 
that endorsed the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. Ken Ham, for example, who defended the Young Earth position, uh, refused to endorse the, those statements. But that's something we've always held at uh, reasons to believe. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Ross, how can the planets in our solar system have uh, magnetism when some don't have molten cores, therefore they can't recharge? How can they be billions of years old? Well, not all the planets have magnetism. The Earth does. Uh, the uh, Jupiter does. And uh, you know, what I see in young Earth creationism is this idea that there's a linear decay in the magnetic field of the Earth, and uh, that is incorrect. It's more of a sinusoidal effect. Uh, the field uh, will decay, but it builds up again. And this is well understood with the interior physics of the sun. I'm actually writing a book on this right now. Basically, and by the way, I would agree or argue that the magnetism that we see in the earth uh, is something that testifies a supernatural design. To have a planet as small as earth with such a, a strong and steady magnetic field uh, is nothing short of uh, miraculous. So I'm arguing that that's a part of the supernatural evidence we have for God designing the earth, earth for our, our benefit. And a lot of people think that when a magnetic field reverses, it's another catastrophe. Papers have just been published saying uh, the field will get weaker, but it doesn't disappear. You basically go from a dipole field to a multipole field. But even in the multipole phase that you get in a magnetic reversal, the field is plenty strong enough to protect us from solar radiation and cosmic radiation. But without it, we wouldn't be having this dialogue that we're having right now. So as to get to more questions, I am going to just go, you guys, if the questions are directed to you, you can just give an answer. I do apologize. We won't have time to get it back and forth there. Um, I mean, we would, but I don't want to, I want to respect your time as well, because I suppose we could stay here forever. Um, okay. Uh, can Dr. Lyle expound more on the distant light travel issue with the Big Bang naturalist model? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, the, the Big Bang has a light travel time issue. It's, it's not a starlight issue per se, but it's called the horizon problem. And you can read about this in any good secular textbook. If, and they're generally very honest about it. Um, some of them think it's solved by inflation. If you've heard of inflationary models, that's an attempt to, assault, to solve the horizon problem. But the idea is, just to summarize the, the issue, when the universe is very, very small, it's supposed to have hot spots and cold spots, and that's caused by the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And then the universe balloons out at an incredible rate, faster than the speed of light. And, and yes, space is allowed to expand faster than light, according to Einstein. And, so, and today, when we look at space and we see these cosmic microwaves, the cosmic microwave background, uh, there's a characteristic temperature associated with those microwaves. The wavelength tells you something about the temperature. And they, they're all very similar in temperature. And so the question is, how did, how did the, you know, initially they started with enormous differences. How, how did they come to the same temperature? when obviously they had to dump some energy from the hot spot to the cold spot to even out the temperatures, right? I mean, you put your ice cube in your hot coffee, eventually you'll end up with a sort of room temperature coffee because it, things come to the same temperature over time. And yet there hasn't been enough time in the secular view, even given the 13.8 billion years for light to travel from the hot spot to the cold spot even once, because they could be on opposite sides of the visible universe and the light's just now getting here and assuming the secular model. And if you've heard of inflationary models, that's an attempt to say, well, the universe uh, expanded at a faster rate and then it slowed down. 
somehow, maybe symmetry breaking or something. And then there, that has issues of its own, such as the graceful exit problem and so on. So that's the inflation is an attempt to solve the horizon problem. Most secular astronomers would hold to an inflationary view, but not all of them. Some of them see that it has problems of its own. So that's basically a summary of the, what's called the horizon problem. All right, here's a comment uh, by Sentinel Apologetics. Uh, Lyle's AC, ASC requires a strong geocentric gravitational field independent of Earth's mass. Astronomers' measurements definitively rule out the possible existence of such a field. How would you respond to that? Yeah, it doesn't. It, it, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure where, I, I saw one article years ago posted on the internet. And of course, if it's on the internet, it's gotta be true. That said that, you know, my, you know inter, if, you, if you measure things by this coordinate system, it'll introduce a gravitational field. No, it doesn't, that's ridiculous. And anybody who knows anything about GR knows better. You can use different coordinate systems in general relativity. In fact, that's really what general relativity is all about. It's about transforming coordinate systems from an inertial frame to a non-inertial frame. So uh, no, there's no, there's no gravity. Changing coordinate systems, that's, that's all anisotropic synchrony convention is. It's a change in coordinate systems back to what they were before Einstein. Einstein tended to prefer what's called an isotropic synchrony convention. Um, people didn't use that much before Einstein where the speed of light is defined to be the same in all directions. And you can do that and the physics works out. And as John Winnie proved, you can, you can do it any other way as well. You can make the speed of light instantaneous in one direction. It has absolutely nothing to do with gravity. Changing a coordinate system will not create a gravitational field. Perhaps some of you have done this in your, in your um, even in high school, you, 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 plot, you plot something in rectangular coordinates and then you plot it in uh, polar coordinates. It doesn't create gravity. It doesn't make like a black hole and your paper gets sucked into it. Changing coordinate systems ha has no influence on gravity whatsoever. Okay. Dr. Ross, uh, this person says, Ross thinks Adam and Eve were, are, are 90,000 years old when no history supports that. What were they doing for 85,000 years? No history, no archeology, span et cetera. Well, uh, we don't have accurate dates scientifically uh, for the origin of Adam and Eve. I just wrote an article on this that you'll see at reasons.org, basically saying that once we get uh, beyond the limits of carbon-14, all we have are indirect methods until you get to a quarter of a million years ago. So there's this gray area where we don't have uh, good scientific dating tools. And so we're looking at uh, error bars as large as 2,000% uh, on those dating methods. However, when we go to scripture, uh, we see that God created Adam and Eve at a time when four known rivers come together. Those rivers are named. We're told where they flow from. And we can look at a map and we can see the two are still flowing today, the Tigris and Euphrates. We can look at uh, satellite imagery and see the dry riverbeds of the Gihon, the Pishon. They do come together in one locale, but the locale today is more than 200 feet below sea level. But during the last ice age, it was above sea level. And so that gives us a rough date, somewhere between 130,000 years ago and 15,000 years ago. God created Adam and Eve. And in terms of history to support that humans have been here, uh, we do have carbon-14 dating that shows that humans were engaged in sophisticated bakery technology that goes back 36,000 years. We got a 36,000 year date, a 23,500 year date, and we also have a 17,000 year date, basically showing that yes, during the last ice age, we had extreme climate instability that made it very challenging to launch any kind of wide-scale uh, civilization. But in spite of that, because of what God endowed in human beings, 
there were these bursts, these temporary bursts where they're demonstrating sophisticated technology. That's something you actually see in Genesis chapter uh, four, that even the earliest humans uh, were involved in uh, you know, cultivation and uh, the harvesting of those cultivated products. And now we got scientific evidence to establish that as early as we can work with uh, the carbon 14. And there's evidence that goes back earlier, but that evidence that goes back earlier is based on dating tools that have huge systematic effects. So again, uh, uh, you're looking at plus or minus 100%, some cases plus or minus 200%. I think that's important because a lot of people will quote scientific papers saying that humans have been here for 300,000 years. When you actually look at the paper and check out the systematics, it's 150,000 years ago, plus or minus 150,000 years. The error bars are literally that big from a scientific perspective. But I think what's interesting Based on Genesis 2, we actually get a more accurate date than we can with the scientific tools. Thank you for that. Uh, Chris Date asks, uh, Dr. Lyle, I'm a young earth creationist and I don't find the scientific evidence to support an old earth except seemingly distant starlight. I don't have a satisfying answer for that. Can you explain what you see as the best young earth explanations of seemingly distant starlight? Yes, I can. I just can't do it succinctly. That's the issue. <laughs> Okay. Uh, basically, uh, the, the speed of light in one direction is not something that is measurable. It is actually stipulated. And, that is, and I, I know that's counterintuitive, but God is under no obligation to make the universe intuitive. And after you've had a course in quantum mechanics, you'll realize he didn't make the universe intuitive. <laughs> but it's interesting. Um, and so, in fact, the one-way speed of light can be as much as infinity, in which case it takes no time at all for the light from those stars to reach the Earth uh, within the biblical time scale. It's, it's not a problem. It, they, they get here instantly. And it's not that, it's not that the, the alternative view that light travels one light year in one year, it's not that that's wrong. It's just a different convention. And so the question then is what convention is the scripture using? Is it using the modern Einstein convention, or is it using the more ancient, um, what, we would, what they would call a visual synchrony convention? And I think it's the more ancient convention. And if you realize that, there is no starlight problem. The, the difficulty in explaining this is it, to, to really understand it, you have to know something about the physics of Einstein. And that's, that's I've, I've always loved the physics of Einstein. I just find relativity fascinating. It's one of my favorite branches of physics. I'm, I'm published in that field. And uh, what I did is I wrote a book called The Physics of Einstein, that, go, that gives you enough understanding of the physics of Einstein in order to see that the distant starlight problem is not really an issue. So take a look at my book, The Physics of Einstein. Um, it, it's in-depth enough. The, the neat thing about Einstein physics, it, most of it's provable, and that's very unusual in science. In science, usually it's inductive, and we make some observations, we draw some conclusions, and a, a future observation could overturn those conclusions. But with the physics of Einstein, it's based on just two uh, premises that the round trip speed of light's constant and that what's called the relativity principle that the physics is sort of the same in any uh, inertial reference frame. And based on those two, you can derive all the rest of relativity. It's absolutely amazing. And I actually show in that book how to do it. Uh, for the adventurous student, I put I even put the math there. And for those who are a little math phobic, I put the math in boxes so you can skip you can skip the math and just get the the gist of relativity. And you'll see that there is no starlight issue if you understand if you understand physics. Okay. 
Uh, here's a question from Daniel. Uh, in terms of debates over the Hebrew of Genesis, how can you determine who has the right interpretation if you yourself are not a scholar with so many differing views? Uh, why don't Doctor? Why don't you, Doctor Ross, uh, address that since the last question was for Jason? Yeah, again, you can uh, go to any seminary and uh, get together a group of uh, Hebrew theologians, Bible scholars who are fluent in Hebrew, and basically ask them this question. And I've done that, and they all make the point that, hey, there's a variety of ways you can look at the interpretation of the Hebrew word for day. Uh, there's a variety of ways in how to interpret the creation days. I personally take the point of view that uh, let's use the scientific method since what I discovered is that the scientific method is derived from the Bible. And if you do that, establish the frame of reference, spirit of God and the surface of the earth, and then the initial conditions, I think you get a very compelling interpretation of the days of creation uh, that is perfectly consistent with what God has revealed uh, in the record of nature. But if you read the theological literature, I've counted 15 different uh, viable ways of interpreting those early chapters of Genesis. And so this is widely uh, debated and agreed upon in the theological community. So again, where you got issues of concern like this, get together the people that are experts in the field and make sure you get a diversity of people that are experts in the field so you're not just hearing one opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, here's another follow-up here. Uh, how does Ross's perspective not reduce down to, it looks like I can't think God would do that Therefore, God did not do that. Well, there again, uh, you go to things that you can measure and test. I mean, uh, just to pick up an example, we have all this theoretical discussion about uh, the synchrony convention. But the truth is, when light travels through space, uh, we see that the continuum radiation is uh, reddened. The spectral lines are broadened in direct proportion to the distance it travels. So that's another indication we're looking at a passage of time for that light. It's not something that's just uh, instantaneous. That's just one of multiple examples, okay? This is an interpretation. How can we put this interpretation of the test? Good theology and good science never rests. Even things that we think are very well established, we continue to find ways to put it to the test. And so, for example, my colleagues in physics are not satisfied that we've proven the constancy of the laws of physics to 16 places of the decimal. They want to push it to 19 places of the decimal. And actually, they're already at the 17th and 18th decimal place, but they want to go a little further. Let's continue to test uh, these biblical principles because the more we put them to the test, the more evidence we find, and that's going to be additions to our tool chest to bring people to faith in Christ. And actually, I love the uh, evangelistic hermeneutic. You know, the Bible was given to us as a tool to bring people to faith in Christ. And I think that actually helps us to determine uh, the correct interpretation, given that that's God's motivation. Uh, how can we actually see what's in the record of nature and the record of Scripture and reap there what we find in order to be more effective in completing the Great Commission? Because I think that's one of God's goals and placing us here on earth right now. Um, here's a comment here. Dr. Lyle, perhaps you could respond to this. Dr. Lyle's ultimate standard isn't the word of God, but it is his interpretation. I mean, that's not a question, but I think it's an important point because we really do have a difference of interpretations, which affects a lot of other things. So um, why don't you address that? 
in my view, the Bible is its best self-interpreter. The Bible is self-interpreting. It tells us, it gives us the criterion by which it should be interpreted. And so this idea, well, that's your interpretation. That's my interpretation. What does the author mean? That's what I want to get at. That's what I want to get at. And you'd say, well, there's, you know, how many legitimate interpretations of, of Scripture are there? Well, if we define legitimate as, the, as getting to the meaning of the author, there's there's one. There's one primary thing the author intended to convey. Now, he might, there might be secondary issues there. That's fine. But script, that's the thing to remember. There are an infinite number of interpretations of any passage of Scripture. There's one meaning. And how do we get to that meaning? Well, I wrote a book on it. <laughs> Understanding Genesis is uh, what it does is it shows you presuppositionally, tra uh, transcendentally, that unless you adopt the particular rules that are laid out in that book, communication between human, two human beings would not be possible because there are certain things that, that are presupposed that are biblical principles uh, that, that allow us to understand each other. And so things like using grammar, using the history of the time, figures of speech and so on, those are things that are important. But I would agree that it's God's word that is the ultimate standard, not my interpretation of it. But, and if you want to challenge my interpretation, that's fine, but do it on the basis of the scriptures and say, here's why, uh, here's why you're wrong about this particular passage and so on and so forth. But I really do believe in the perspicuity of scripture. And so I don't believe the Bible is particularly difficult to interpret. God didn't make it as a puzzle where this actually means that and so on and so forth. It really is pretty easy to understand. I'll give you that there are a few difficult passages, but for the most part, it's just telling us about God, our relationship with God, the events of history that made salvation necessary, and God's plan of redemption, which he carried out at the cross. Dr. Ross, um, Dr. Ross has made the claim that generations are missing. Uh, which generations? How do you know? How do you refute Jude 14, which says Enoch is the seventh from Adam? Well, again, uh, this is something where we can go to the experts, uh, those who are fluent in Hebrew. As I've taught to them, they would claim that every biblical genealogy is incomplete. And actually, if you look at the genealogies, I think it's quite important to discern, okay, why are these individuals being selected? And as I've compared the biblical genealogies, I notice that some make a special point of mentioning women as opposed to men basically making a point the gospel is both for male and female. Others make it a point to single out certain very, uh, you know, people have really committed significant sin and have repented as basically making the theological point. Yes, we're all sinners. Some of us are horrible sinners, but God can deal with that. He can redeem even the most sinful individual. And so I think there's actually a theological message being given to us in these genealogies. When it comes to Genesis 5 and 11, one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, I really do believe that people lived at the capacity to live eight, 900 years in the days before the flood. This would generate under normal circumstances, a huge population explosion. And it didn't happen. Genesis 4 explains why. Murder began to run out of control. And you see that in the early verses of Genesis 6. So it's possible what we have in Genesis 5 is actually a list of the patriarchs that died a normal death, or like Enoch, were taken by God while he was still alive. The ones that managed to survive being murdered by their fellow man. Because, you know, as I look at these early chapters of Genesis, the murder rate had to be north of 95%. And so I think it really gives us a whole new perspective on why God judged humanity with a flood. Humanity was literally in, in, uh, under the threat of self-extermination. 
So in that sense, I look at the flood as an expression of God's mercy. Uh, but I think the genealogies actually give us some insight into that. But again, just recognizing that it is in Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew makes no distinction between father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. And uh, as we look at the other genealogies, we see they overlap, that every one of them has missing names. And, you know, there's a name we see in Luke that we don't see in uh, Genesis 5. All right, thank you for that. Uh, can Dr. Lau explain the echo chambers tendency of peer-reviewed articles and how philosophical assumptions influence scientific conclusions? Yeah, I mean, you'd think scientists would be above that sort of thing, but the fact is, we're you know we're, we're sci we scientists are human beings too, and we have beliefs about how the world works. And the fact is, the evolutionary uh, worldview has really become pretty entrenched in uh, sort of mainstream scientific circles. Not not completely, but it's there. And there are some journal editors that would not even allow. A uh, say a, a, a young Earth article. It doesn't matter that the science is good. They would say, "Well, that can't be right." Obviously, because you've drawn the wrong conclusion somewhere. You've gone, you've gone crazy here, and, and we get that. I mean, we understand that. If if somebody gave you an article, well, I used to be able to use this as an analogy. It's 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 not as much. It's not as good anymore. But I it used to be able to say, you know, if somebody presented you an argument for a flat Earth, <laughs> you, you might be inclined to dismiss that, and you probably should. Uh, because there is good evidence that the world's round and so on. And I think secularists, because they're so convinced that evolution in the billions of years is true, that if an article comes across their, their uh, desk, they're thinking, this is a waste of time for me to even, even review this. And so you'll tend to find that um, uh, most, most scientific publications, not all of them, but most of them are antagonistic to any kind of uh, biblical creation publication. And so we do have our own, we do have our own journals that we publish in that are peer reviewed by, by Christians who have a worldview that we think is basically right. And so you can, you can always go to those as, as an alternative, but yeah, it, it, Hey, it's a common tendency. We tend to think, we tend to think a certain way and we tend to hang out with people that think kind of the way we think. And uh, we just got to be careful about that. All right. Well, we just reached two hours in one minute and we've agreed that we would go two hours. So I do want to respect that. I could listen to you guys all day long. There are a lot more questions, but I do want to respect your time. You guys have been very, very generous. And I think you've given uh, everyone a lot to think about. Um, I'm definitely going to read through uh, your book, uh, Dr. Ross, and I'm going to revisit. I do have Understanding Genesis as well. I'll revisit your book as well, Dr. Lyle. I think both of you guys did an excellent job. Uh, perfect examples of Christian gentlemen interacting. Uh, Dr. Lyle got a little animated at one point. <laughs> it's all good, though. I'm sure, uh, you know, both of you guys are very passionate about this uh, topic. Are there any final words that you'd like to say before uh, before we close this episode? Um, how about uh, you, Dr. Ross, uh, first? Well, just study to sow yourself approved. I mean, we're, we're encouraged to do that. Uh, and you know, I like the analogy about the echo chambers. Make sure you get outside your echo chamber, uh, get that kind of critique. Uh, listen to unbelievers. They have a lot to share with us. I believe that God gives us grace to both Christians and non-Christians. So I think it's important. I can't tell you how often uh, God has spoken to me and corrected me uh, through words that he's uh, communicated to me through people who are not yet believers. And incidentally, I think that's a great evangelistic tool. Uh, we treat these unbelievers with that kind of respect. Uh, they're going to start listening to us. And so take advantage of those opportunities. First Peter 3.15, 
Always be prepared to give good reasons for the hope you have in Jesus Christ with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. And always be cognizant that unbelievers are going to listen more to your demeanor than you are your words or your arguments or your evidence. Okay, thank you. Dr. Lyle? Well, um, thanks for having me on. Good to see you, Eli. Good to see you, uh, Hugh. Uh, I, actually, you and I, we get along pretty well, really. We adamantly disagree on theology, but uh, he's a nice guy and, and very personable. And I appreciate that. Uh, by all means, read his book, uh, then read Understanding Genesis, and let the Bible be the final arbitrator. That's the key. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. That's what we want to, uh, I think that's what I want to end with, because that's something that's that's the most important thing. The Bible is the ultimate infallible word of God. Mm. Uh, real quick, I won't put, you know what, I'll, I was going to ask you a question, Dr. Lyle, um, but I'm going to wait until we're off air because I don't want to put you on the spot. So I'll be respectful of that. But um, guys, um, again, if you have not already, please subscribe to the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel um, and uh, press the notification button for some really interesting and I think important uh, and useful um, interviews and discussions that we're going to be having in the future. So if you haven't done that already, please do so. And of course, check out um, Reasons to Believe. And what, what was the name of your website uh, again, Dr. Lyle? Biblical Science Institute. Biblical Science Institute. So please check them out. You can purchase their books either on their website or on Amazon, which I'd highly recommend. Uh, well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening in. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. Thank you, Dr. Ross, for giving of your time. And Dr. Lyle, again, for coming on. Again. Well, both of you guys came for the second time. So I do appreciate that. Thank you so much. And I hope I was a, a good enough uh, host moderator uh, to uh, facilitate this discussion. So that's all for this episode. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.